and welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And why are we here? To review music. Oh, okay. I'm in the wrong place. Wait, what did you think we were here to do? I thought we were just going to shoot the breeze for the next two and a half to three hours. You want room five. Oh. That's where they shoot the breeze. But what do they shoot it with? Do they use a handgun? No, airsoft guns. Oh, airsoft there you guns. Go. Oh, okay. There you you go. don't really have to do much to shoot the breeze, really. I suppose not. Yeah. I mean, I believe anyone capable, really. There. Whew. I shot it. No, that's not an airsoft gun. Ah, but, it, you know, force impact. Yeah, but force and physics? shooting are not the same. No, well, he's right about the physics. Yeah. Right, the physics part of it. He but said force sh- and impact. There's impact in shooting. Bingo. Right, yeah. but there's no impact in his breath. Actually, no, there is a, a, a mild... It was heard. Well, was it though? There's, there's a mild impact. Like there's, there's a little bit of an impact. I mean, Steve. Does really Steve have any impact? Oh, Ooh. oh, this is. Just, yeah, you went there. I did. Turning yeah. these intros into, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Basically, make fun of the person who starts. Essentially. Yeah, yeah that's right. usually how this goes well, at this point. Well, let's pass the buck. Um, pass the buck because actually, uh, I only start it because of that little thing that we do, where I take on all listener picks and Matt takes on all guest picks. Correct. You know, John uh, doesn't take on anything but his own. Well, mine are usually selfish. like the really hard ones that are really monstrous and defy actual explanation. Shut up. Actually, mine are like that. <laughs> the We're going to fight on like that, that for the end. No, yours are, we all agree yours are not like that. Um, yeah, so this week is, of course, a listener pick. Uh, although, actually, it's kind of one of those half-and-half half deals. So, really, me and Matt should have started off at the same time because, of course, it concerns listener and former guest. Right. But I guess the former thing doesn't really matter in this case. He's a listener now, at least we assume. He listened to that one episode that he was a guest on, and he is Devin Jackson Mullen of Anxious Kids Make Good People, a.k.a. AKMG. GP, uh, and he joined us back in episode 141 to review Nocturne by Wild Nothing, and also to discuss his EP at the time, Radio Fireflies. Well, guess what? Devin Jackson Mullen has just dropped a new album on April 25th. That was two Tuesdays ago, as far as this episode's intended air date is concerned, because <laughs> uh, this was recorded in, I don't know, 1890, for it, all you know. Yeah, that's true. That's well, right. no, probably not 1890. I mean, we they could, didn't have recording software back then. We could uh, not back software, but they had recording devices. Really good fidelity for 1890. But that would probably place us at about 150 years old right now. What will Edison do next? Um, <laughs> anyway, Devin's new album will be called Terra Ex Nihilo. Uh, Nihilo, Terra Ex Nihilo is the from the Latin land or earth out of nothing or out from nothing. Thankfully, I know just the right amount of Latin to get that title right. Uh, so yeah, expect that and more from Devin Jackson Mullen. Uh, check out his other work, check out episode 141, and check out this, this episode right here as it was Devin's considered opinion that we tackle Drunk by Thunder Cat, the stage name of Grammy Award-winning bassist Stephen Bruner. And uh, we are familiar with Thundercat as when we had another guest on, we took on Flying Lotus's last record, oh, that's, which uh, featured Thundercat. Precisely what I'm going to get to, because it was actually two other occasions. We did Flying Lotus on episode 19 and episode 131. Well, right. Was Thundercat on both? <laughs> Thundercat was on both. Oh, wow, okay. They are frequent collaborators, and I, I guess this actually does uh, beg a slight retelling of this tale. So, yeah, it was actually, it was episode 19, it was the very first time we encountered it. I brought the album on. It was me, Matt, and Nelson Lugo, who filled in for John when he was dead for a week, and uh, we reviewed Flying Lotuses Until the Quiet Comes, which... I would say we reviewed two mixed, two scathing reviews, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, in, in short, I don't recommend that episode. <laughs> it was not a comprehensive look at the artist, but suffice it to say, our current analysis format took a while to develop, and I don't think we were there at the time. And I believe we should always be in the process of developing, a state of devel- 
development. Otherwise, the purpose of the show is moot. And back then, our approach was a little bit looser. Our listens were just one-shot first impressions, which should tell you a lot right there. And although we'll never delete our older work, uh, that album definitely took a fall, in my opinion, for being featured so early in the series. And it became the butt of a running joke for quite a long time. Uh, I think under the current format, it would never have become the butt of the very same joke. And that begs the question, why didn't it work for us at the time? Well, the one-shot listen is definitely one of those reasons. The other problem, the particular problem concerning that album, uh, is, I think, somewhat ironically, because of the track's brevity. All of the track's brevity on that album. Snippets of musical material. I would almost define the entire album as consisting of, like, thematic experimentation and just concentrated mood-based exposés. And I find that ironic because most people tend to think that the bigger challenge is really the long form, that it takes more effort from the composer to compose stuff, you know, for several minutes on end up to 20, 30 minutes, and it also demands more patience from the listener. And yet our experience on this show has really been quite the opposite. We've got the patience for the most part, it just always depends on the depth of the given work. So we're kind of half and half with the long stuff, but kind of unforgiving about the shorties because we just search aimlessly for complete stories that were never intended to be. Even the word vignettes kind of oversells it. Maybe Nickelodeons is a better descriptor. Nickelodeons. Yes. That is a very interesting descriptor that I don't believe I've actually heard before. Yes. Nickelodeon music. I mean, that's But not, where... not the kind <laughs> that you'd hear back on... No. Not... not <laughs> yeah, Okay. Um, but don't, don't oversell the longer tracks, because we tend to have some very uh, opinionated feelings when something feels like it's getting a little bit long in the tooth. Yeah, that's why I um, definitely backtrack to say it's about half and half. But I think, like, it's not as a rule, but, like, at least if you go back through the, the longer tracks, it's about half and half with us almost in every instance. But the shorter tracks for us are only usually, I think, show shining through the mix when they're like a pointed interlude or something right. like that. Not when it's just short track after short track after short track. With the so, exception of They Might Be Giants. Actually, I'm yeah, still, I'm still on the fence with that. I'm still not 100% not, behind not it. Us. That's true. We that wasn't, that's true. That was not John's favorite part of that particular yeah. album. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I, well, we tried it again, for instance, in episode 131. So we did try this with uh, Tony Catalano when he yeah. brought on Flying Lotus's second album, You're Dead. Uh, and I do think we were much more accepting of it. Yes. Yeah. Well, surprise, surprise, Thundercat is on both of those albums, and that's the big connection. It's why I'm anchoring Flying Lotus here, because Flying Lotus is an integral part of today's record. Flying Lotus is the lead producer on this. He wrote a vast majority of these tracks and was a was featured in a great majority of them alongside Thundercat, which is, of course, Steven Bruner. And actually, they're, they're both Stevens, because uh, Flying Lotus is Steven Ellison. So Steven and Steven, Bruner and Ellison. Flying Lotus and Thundercat. That's a, that's a power duo right there. Right. Sounds like a superhero team, really. A Flying Lotus and Thundercat. <laughs> Flying Lotus! I'll just stand on the sidelines. Need a third? Need a third, <laughs> Stephen? Right. right. Uh, let's, let's go for the third experiment of its kind on this show, because this is uh, really just in the same exact ilk. It's just the reversal of the situation. Well, that was Flying Lotus with, with Thundercat and a bunch of them. This is Th- Thundercat with Flying Lotus on a bunch of them. Uh, we get to tackle it again, this time 23 tracks. Many of them around a minute to three minutes. Not all of them. Some are a little bit longer, but many of them in that shorter span. And many of them feature not just Flying Lotus, but also Michael McDonald, Kendrick Lamar, Soundwave, Lewis Cole, Mono Polly, Taylor Graves, Wiz Khalifa, Kenny Loggins, Kamasi Washington, and of course, Pharrell Williams. Yeah, well, it's you don't have a killer record unless you've got Pharrell Williams. That on is it. absolutely not true. No, actually, Pharrell Williams just will make a good record even better. There's uh, a difference uh, going on right fair there. Enough. It also proves he's got friends, this Thundercat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. Um, but yeah, so if we've not said already, and even if we have, it bears repeating, this is drunk 
by Thundercat. Just to start with his name and the fact that it takes me back to the good old ladies and the Thundercats cartoon, which if you go back and watch the original Thundercats cartoon, the voice acting is damn near unbearable. Yeah, it's it just does. terrible. I don't doubt it. It it's doesn't just stand terrible. up. It doesn't, doesn't stand up. Not, um, not there is, it actually do. looks like, just visually looks like the voice acting would be unbearable yeah. from the animation. <laughs> but they did reboot it uh, not that long ago, and that version is actually pretty good. Mm, I enjoyed it. That was it unbearable was right. for other reasons for well, me. But uh, references to old school cartoons aside, um, you make a lot of good points, Steve. I think that structurally when we're dealing with a dense album that has a lot of short tracks, sometimes it's easy to get swept up in all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. But before we get too much further into talking about the music, let's talk about the album cover, which is set up to be like an old school vinyl. It's got a little logo in the corner, like from the print, the publisher. And it's it, in stereo. It is in stereo. <laughs> and it, at the top in bold white letters, it says Thundercat drunk. Which I also is... want to mention the photography here. It was by Eddie Alcazar. I want to mention the artist yeah. and the photographer whenever applicable. I don't know who that is. Is that actually I, I Stephen Bruner? Yeah, I believe that's is. Thundercat. How could you tell though? It's only the top half of his face. Because I took, looked up other pictures of him and it looks just like him, at least from, from the, yeah, I, 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 the I distance. I saw some pictures where he was wearing a hat, so I only had the eyes to go off of. <laughs> Uh, those are some intense eyes. They right are there. extremely intense, and I think I'm actually quite in impressed at how much emotion he does have wrapped up in just the top half of his face. Yeah, for those not looking at it, but you should be, it's a picture of what we assume is Thundercat halfway submerged underwater, clearly drowning, and making an expression of pained terror and fright, possibly. Well, not are you clearly kidding? drowning. He, he looks, looks like he's floating and stalking someone on the opposite side of the yeah, screen. Yeah, I'm getting more of an emerging from the depths full of anger and pain kind of a feel. Oh, yeah, I can see that, too. But I do want to comment on the font itself being used. That is an extremely old-school style. I would have seen this on something like Jimi Hendrix albums or anything from that era, the 1960s, 1970s. And considering the... Uh, musical stylings that are in this album, I find it to be very appropriate. It has a, a Motown funk in a mm -hmm. lot of it. It has a little bit of R&B or really like progenitor style R&B, like old school R&B that became the main sound. So to go real old school and to go with just that subtly cursive normal font, all caps, lots of white quotes around the actual title name. All these are really just old school indicators of a vinyl record. And it also does say Thundercat presents drunk. If you look, uh, yeah, another keyword use, squint. yeah, got squint. And, and so that that I think is important to mention as well because a lot of older albums did that. Like you know, it's this artist presenting their album, presenting their album as if it were a show. What kind yeah. of yeah? Another thing here, it almost rings just for, if you look at everything going on there, and also the color scheme, the slight little tint about it. It's not quite. It's not as bright because it's using a, maybe an older style film. It looks like it could maybe come out of like a, a B movie of the era. Which, yeah. When I, honestly, when you consider the era, B would probably stand for exploitation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in which case, there's your there's your main character. But if you also look at, once again, I'm going to go to Jimi Hendrix, The Experience. Um, it has a very grainy, almost sepia quality to it, even though in that uh, particular album cover, yeah. it is very uh, neon lights oriented. Right. It still has that kind of 
uh, yeah, graininess to the film, just a, like a yellowing or a tinting or a fading of the film itself. And this cover is reproducing that dramatically. Right. At the same time, I actually think it's a really solid piece of photography. I like the yeah. way the light bounces off of it. So it's just a really nice balance between the old and the stylish. And also, going back to what Steve said, he really is producing a lot of emotion just with his eyes and his eyebrows, which yeah. I always love how expressive you can be just using that and cutting off half his face or at least blurring it because it's under the water so you can only sort of see it through the water. Which is another reason why I brought up the genre that right. I did because it often involves crime stopping and that yeah. sort of thing and it looks like he's got that mission about him. Right, he's got that focus. He's yeah. almost got the one eyebrow raised thing like The Rock has, you know, showing that attitude by raising the one eyebrow. Yes, the furrowed brow. The furrowed yeah, brow. Yeah, your wrestler showing. My wrestler showing, yes, true. WrestleMania just happened as of when we are recording but now I'm putting more time. You're dating the on. content. I know, I'm dating the content. All right, last, last thing on the album cover, he's Drunk, as in he's drinking the water right below the. L no, I'm abandoning this. No, yeah, no, no, no. I don't know. All right. Submerged, drunk. I don't know. No. Well, nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. That actually Could goes be. against the content Could of be. the very first track. Rabbit Ho. I think uh, that's how you say Rabot. it. Rabot. Rabot Ho. Rabot. It's, it's R A B B O T and then space. It, but H -O. It's, it's rabbit is is rabbit. So I thought Rabot, like I don't know, over pronunciation. Yeah, I, no I thought Rabot Ho, like, like Mr. Rabot Ho. Yeah, that's, that's my thought too. So as well. yeah, we're not getting these jokes right at all. <laughs> I don't think. I think it's all above us. But this is only a thirty-eight second track. This it's is a pure, definitely an intro. Yeah, it's a pure introductory kind of a piece, even though there's still plenty of content going on right here. Sort of a harpsichord-y sound married with the bass. The bass well, that we're going to get throughout this entire album, Thundercat's bass. Well, first of all, if you just talk about the connection from the album cover that we just described, you know, you have the swampy water right in the beginning, the crickets, in fact. Uh -huh. So when you combine, I mean, just that setting, of course, it's in the process of sounding very solemn and unsettling. And yeah. I think by the time we, we get the vocals, that, that theme, uh, with very short lyrics here, when it rains, it pours, open windows and closed doors, all the pretty lights and sounds to open up the night, friends, they come and go. That's okay. I'm kind of bored. Let's go hard, get drunk, and trap it down a rabbit hole. All right, well, and this is just kind of shortening that. But in that case, this is melancholy. It's actually not the way I, I expected the album to begin because, of course, you get the funk vibe initially, but you think because of funk, it's going to get a little peppier. But this is like a solemn exposition for I mean, an album that never really... I think opens up the funk doors completely. Well, I mean, I, I would agree that the lyrical content is solemn, but the music felt more of it like a serenade. It didn't feel, it didn't feel inherently depressing or sad to me. It felt kind of lamenting, which is not quite the same thing. I feel. Mm, like. I know. Well, lamenting is I close guess, to yeah, what I felt, true. Yeah, and that and that negates fair. what you said. All right, all right. <laughs> and a serenade would be easily doing both lovey-dovey, just enjoyment of life kind of a thing, as well as lamentation. That's true. And considering the vocal style being so high-end and so pitchy in that higher end, uh, we're looking at something that I think has got a lot of anguish in it. At the end of the day, it just feels like he's presenting as his first foot forward. Yeah. Sadness. Just really yeah. melancholy, anguish. Maybe a little bit hint of fear, maybe a little bit hint of regret, especially because... Yeah, I get all these things, but it's, it's, it's in the distance a little bit, which is why I'm going to at least validate maybe Matt's drive to want to perceive this in a slightly more peaceful way, mm -hmm. because it's, in, it's not like in the midst of the problem. It's all aftermath. It's yeah. all aftermath, and it's like pining, wishfulness, you know? Yeah. And I guess that's why I, I'm 
really wrapped up in the tone of the bass as well, because that's mm -hmm. probably one of the main reasons why, I mean, at least it's the undercurrent. Of course, yeah, the bass course. is the undercurrent in all cases, but in this particular case, it's it's because he's sort of following in those Jaco Pistorius uh, footsteps, certainly it, it, part of the reason why I'm attracted to this this uh, album as a whole, and especially this first track, is because of my love for Jaco Pistorius' self-titled album, and really anything he did in his career. But it's probably my favorite bass tone, period. Mm -hmm. The kind of bass that we hear in this particular track. It's rugged, it's warbly, but it's very warm and full of character. For instance, all of the things that John just said, the anguish, the mm. the, the the lonesomeness even. You feel that in this track. And uh, I will agree that there is, just based on this track, a sense of seriousness that doesn't last very long beyond this track. But in this moment, right. I feel like it's not, the, I don't get a sense of humor or tongue-in-cheekness. This does seem pretty face value for what it is. But I will actually be refuting that. I feel like there's a lot of serious content in nearly every single one of these tracks no, but you're that's being masqueraded by amusement but, or but, comedy. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this track has a serious tone flat out comparatively to the next couple of tracks we get, which start out no, that's, pretty that's what I'm going that to refute. Exactly... That's exactly what I'm going to refute. Right. Your, your explanation is just saying that's, that's just giving me the bigger point to make. And I... I guess I'm going to make it in the next one. You might as well go ahead and make it, because I think I'm going to agree with you in this case. Track two, Captain Stupido. There's a combination going on in the vocals, and this is what I want to talk about right away, because this is this is where I'm going to be my stepping stone. I feel weird. Comb your beard. Brush your teeth. <laughs> Still feel weird. Beat your meat. Go to sleep. The juxtaposition between the two different vocal styles that are showing up right here in this first verse... It's alternating measures of the, the sort of the still-musing falsetto, mm -hmm. right? That carries that aspect over, because yeah. that's how I describe the falsetto in the entire first track, kind of musing, shifting about as if it's meandering, trying to find meaning, and it just continues that with this, I feel weird, and then second measure, harsh cut to that almost goofy, almost yeah. cartoonish, comb your beard, <laughs> brush your teeth, yeah. <laughs> But the really bringing out the R. Yeah, but 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 it's just something is tickling the back of his mind as he goes through a very monotonous day of a very the same as everything else. But that tickling in the back of the mind is reminding me of a jamais vu kind of a moment, which is the opposite of deja vu and something I've actually brought up on the podcast. You have, but it, I will not tell you that number because <laughs> I'm good, but I'm I've used good. it a few times. And it's a very specific feeling of you're in a very similar situation to so many other times of your life, but there's something about it that feels distinctly off and distinctly unique, even though you brush your teeth every day, or at least you should, comb your beard. I don't know if you should be beating your meat every day, but that, that some people have to. <laughs> often enough, I think. Yeah, yeah, more often than not. <laughs> but having something that bothers you in the back of your mind, yeah, it's being presented with a little bit of laughter, especially when we go into, the, I guess, the chorus of the track. It's it's sort of, yeah, I guess this is the chorus, because this is kind of the crux of the matter. It's, uh, I think I left my wallet at the club. <laughs> It's just this fast little burst. You almost I didn't even pick it up for several times. I actually did have to eventually go to the lyrics for this because I didn't exactly hear what was being said. I think I left my wallet at the club. I actually heard it at the end of the track, believe it or not. I didn't hear it this early on because it felt like it was a little more enunciated at the end and it was almost meant to be shrouded a little bit in just that, that speedy delivery. But with the 
just the comedy of it, it keeping you up at night. But at the same time, it feels like that moment where you're about to fall asleep because it's the end of the day. We've gone through everything else. We're going to sleep. And then you remember that one thing that's going to keep you up all night. It's, it's a tiny terror, a little moment of terror. In this situation, it is still funny, but it's not laugh out loud kind of comedy. It is just a juxtaposition of, yeah, you forgot your wallet and it, It'll keep you up at night, but it's also a very mundane kind of fear. You can almost fear. visualize him just, like, tapping his pockets. Like, what's what's different? What's different? I would say that the laugh-out-loud comedy comes from the delivery. His vocal delivery yes, yeah. is where it comes through. And also, the instrumentation here kind of wraps you up in everything. Because I described the start of the song instrumentally as this kind of techno-blast. This idea that we had something that felt fairly uh, closer to actual instruments in the first track that goes into this clearly more electronic sounding thing. The bass is still there, but it definitely brings up this kind of brightness that we hadn't really heard before. It, well, it's got a lot of Kind yeah, of a, a, lot of, a lot of yeah, that stuff. The like drum machine is drum machine is just tapping along kind of fancifully. It just feels like a good time at the jazz club, honestly, yeah. which is why, yeah, I guess it, for the most part, is bliss. Like, it, it's blissful ignorance of yeah. that little problem. I think I left my wallet at the club. Kind of like, damn, yeah, but you get over it quick. And really, it's not like it was, like, maybe, I don't, wouldn't even say keeping you up. You're just, you're just going about your day, but something is off, and it's just in the back of your mind, maybe even in your unconscious. But otherwise, you're just having a good time. And, and I think those rapid chord changes in the background really do a lot to keep this lighthearted, but at the same time meander about as if it's searching for something to find fault with. Yeah. And that is the thing. And for sure, like, the different ways the instruments kind of interact also helps with that. I mean, the fact that we get even a bit of a steel string guitar as we move through the song that kind of adds a bright, a further brightness and fancifulness that, that just helps continue to convey that feeling. Lots of exchange here between mm -hmm. the lead guitar, which actually, yeah, for a while starts to even feel like a solo briefly, and then mm -hmm. they kind of bring it back together. It's constant back and forth, and it has a lot of energy. This is when I, it, it, I would call it harmless fun at this point, um, mm -hmm. which, yes, does kind of uh, go back to your point, Matt, as far as you, the way you visualize this. But it is true that maybe this is the beginning, and I think this is what John is getting to, this is like the beginning of just, the, if that's the minor thing, then they gradually open up the problems deeper into the record. So of course they would sh start with something this benign. And I will actually compliment something I did not like on this piece, and that's a, a, a bit of scattering, especially after the choruses or what we're terming choruses, because it just goes back and forth. It, well, it just doesn't happen it's... both times. It only happens after the second chorus. There's, you're talking about the audio stutter? Yes. Yeah, so there's this moment where the, the instrumentation seems to almost break down or stutter a little bit, giving almost that moment of non-humor of, oh, shit, something's wrong. And that is my compliment. Yeah. As much as I don't actually really enjoy it, it, I felt like it beat it up a little bit too much for me to really stay within the track itself. I understand what it's doing, and it... That, to me, has a weight of foreshadowing mm -hmm. on other content as we go through this album that, uh, in retrospect, works exceedingly well. Well, I actually rather liked the scattering about. I thought yeah. it gave some pep earlier on, and also just it was sort of intriguing. Granted, of course, it's not, well, this is just a coincidental title, of course, but it's not scattering by Prager, which, believe it or not, just because of the title, I actually think does have a lot of similarities in this. If you just look at, like, small components, but, of course, 
they did expand it into other things. This is more. This is more about process. This is why I, I went through my rant on the uh, the the short the short scale the the micro scale composition because it's tinkering with ideas sometimes just single ideas and kind of not developing them but tinkering with them and you have to scatter about in order to tinker. And going back though, uh, building on that. Uh, as the song wraps up, we don't stay in that moment of finger quote seriousness for very long because the song ends with him snoring and then farting. And, and then, oh, I forgot that my wallet yeah, in yeah, the yeah. club. Middle One last of the time night. Of like just, this middle of the night actually waking up moment. Which is a jarring experience. Right. It's, I mean, I know it's jarring when I but fart in my sleep. Fart joke, <laughs> jarring. I wouldn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's a sure. combination. He's still keeping levity in the piece, but there is... There's something that I don't feel is quite right with yeah. what's going on, and that actually shows up pretty heavily in the next piece. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Featuring Zach Sekoff, which we, I believe is the uh, pianist on this track. I would believe so. Um, and, oh, and let's talk about the piano, because the way this song starts, I mean, it feels almost... Like, talking about that, like, startled, being startled and woken up in the middle of the night, the, the piano here is completely haunting. It doesn't feel fun and funny like the previous track. But I don't think that's the Zach Sekoff or Zach Sekoff part. I think that he's the piano further along in the track, because remember, this starts off quite a bit darker, and it's not really a piano to me, at least it's probably keyboard, it's all synth at this point, but there's a piano deeper in, which is a straight-up jazz piano. I think that's actually the part that is him. Whether he did this or not, this beginning part, is neither here nor there. I'm not sure. But th this, I would describe as sort of a less polished super metroidian ditty it, it's really kind of dark uh if the if the chords weren't dark enough it's actually the fact that each chord sounds so weak in the very beginning as a re as a result it sort of sounds like it's encroaching upon you and that's what kind of sets me on edge here actually i i termed it a little bit differently in my notes as uh, some another thing i feel like i'm going to be using a lot of previous just imagery a music box but the sort of music box that's winding down, that's falling yeah, apart on you, that's legs. rusty. Yeah. It's in the it's very beginning part just have a that. creep factor that really hits me hard. And this is this is the, the the next point that I really just firmly believe that we are going to get pure comedy in the sense that it's going to be laughter, but the sort of laughter that obviously has pain behind it. Like Dark true comedy. comedy. Yeah. And yet this is probably where we take the biggest shift toward me it's kind of going toward Matt's side because yeah. the rest of this is just it, it's a bonanza of, of happiness at least I could not take wipe the smile off my face yeah. basically the bridge that you have between this intro and well the 23 second mark uh, is is these phasing sounds just prior to that 23 second mark kind of a phasing sounds that prompts you for something completely different we break away from it and then it's just a funk extravaganza I, I could not get enough of this bass style I, I, I wasn't even moving quite yet to this you know yeah. not in the way you'd expect me to just be moving blissfully along to funk as I do instead this is one of those experiences where you just stare into space and are completely still to the whirlwind of virtuosity taking place in your eardrums. It's the fast pick that's going on right here that really is mind-blowing for me because the cutoff on these notes really doesn't make it feel like just a bass. It feels like it's actually leaning toward its guitar roots 
in style. Well, see, I don't know if there's like two different tracks here of basses or whether he's playing two different things simultaneously. There are basses, you know, that can do that, that can actually like have something going on more in the upper, if they can like stretch their uh, their, their fingers wide open to, to play something a little bit lower. And then they've turned a instrument that really should be in just one register into the whole kit and caboodle. In which case, well, it's at least a good portion of this kit and caboodle alongside the piano. And the piano, once it really enters in here, this just became one of the best jams I mm-hmm. think I've even heard on this show. And I know what it always sounds like whenever I say something like that. I'm overstating it. I'm, I'm ramping up the energy of something by speaking in hyperbole. But this is not hyperbole. I, I try to pick apart different aspects of music. And while this is not my favorite track, it, it already has a, it already is a lead contender for most virtuosic on on probably for this year, regarding, regardless of its length, regardless of the fact that it has kind of a confined focus. But if you just look at the interaction between the bass and the piano here, if you, if you had a small cube in zero gravity, and you're watching a ball bounce around the walls of this very tiny cube at like 50 miles an hour, it's going to look chaotic and captivating. That's why I say I'm just staring at this. But now if you blow up that cube like a thousandfold, and you have the ball going around at the same pace, but it's got all this space to travel, it's gonna look not as interesting. In other words, I defend this track for being precisely how long as it is, because it's an extravaganza that to be dragged out wouldn't really be as interesting. Yeah, and I think because this is our first true instrumental on the album too, we get a sense of the kinds of things that are going to happen on some of the true instrumental tracks on this record. Because these kinds of things do happen again. But that's not the best part for me. And that is when the vocalizing comes in. As much as I'd like to complain about people just going ooh and ah, it works so well right here as yeah. sort of a a leveling stick to make me really see the context of what the bass is doing. Just see here, just a, a, an, an, an ooh on top of everything else yep. settles down the bass enough, at least to my ears, even though it doesn't really change its pace, it does allow me to, I guess, experience it a little bit easier. Because now that I can take my focus a little bit less off the bass, I'm experiencing it more, I guess, more fully, because I'm not trying to dissect it anymore. Yeah. I'm not trying to pick apart where they're playing here, there, or anywhere. I'm just letting the bass hit me while I'm focusing on an almost voice. Yeah, it's just, it really was a, a, a captivating track. I mean, from beginning to end, it, it's first you just the bass to focus on, then you have more the piano to focus on, and then by that point, it's really all at once with those vocalizations in the background. It's the scale hopping around this track that I think I'm most fascinated by. You 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 don't want any hint of vastness in this track. It's yeah. about density. It's about compression. That's the, the sort of the ex- expose that I was discussing in the beginning. Yet, the cutout at the end when the drums go away, when the rhythm really goes away... Yeah when you strip it down. That actually feels the most expansive yeah. because it mm-hmm. becomes the more singular bass. And as much as you just said that you don't want it to be undensified, yeah, you don't want it to be spread out, this felt like a spreading out and I felt like it really fulfilled the idea of the bass. All, all that energy well. in that cube just, it just scattered. Well, it exactly. the walls, everything. Because it's an release. instantaneous release and then it ends pretty much on a dime. The track doesn't really fade out. If that happens and then it ends. We get a few moments of just like the energy yeah. dispersing. Which, which I think we needed and it made the track kind of feel complete, I'd say. And then it leads us into track four, Bus in these streets, and this is featuring Lewis Cole. This is... I Quite want, a bit slower. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Uh, 
Maybe. I don't know. I think you could actually count it almost as fast if you really get into the nitty-gritty of it. But it's the chimes that I feel like slow it down a lot. Or the organ-ish chimes because they kind of get replaced with it gives an me a feeling of later. like It gives me a feeling of like a Christmas song. It's, it doesn't sound like a Christmas song per se. But, but it's I think silver it's, bells. Well, it's the silver bells and it's the rocking of the silver, silver bells that kind of emulate almost a sleigh bell kind of feel. And so that's why I think my brain goes there. It's kind of like, it's the strange thing about the accent marks here yeah. with, with those chimes, of course. This kind of like one and two and and one yeah. and two. And 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 it's it makes it sound gleeful again. Yeah. So we're still kind of we have that we have that uh, veneer. Um, also with the falsettos, they sound sort of blissful in themselves. And of course, even the first lines, "Stuck in the clouds." That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I'm high as a kite. Don't bother me. I'm out here, probably doing the most. From the minute I wake up, I'm staring at the screen, watching the world go insane. And I love how high he goes right there, by the way, at watching the world go insane. Mm-hmm. Um, gotta stay connected so I know what's happening in these streets. Thank God for technology, because where would we be if we couldn't tweet our thoughts? And mm. this we'll, is where the we'll track, ride there. Yeah, this is where the lyrics start to take a, tongue, a more tongue-in-cheek twist. As well, it continues. It's not just that. It becomes an actual commentary. Well, it's right. actually saying something. But, but it's the delivery of the commentary and how he states it that makes it tongue-in-cheek. Tragic comedy, once yeah. again, showing up. And it's this is the first time, I think, aside from the music really grabbing me from the first track, this is the first time the lyrics are are straight up grabbing me, are, are actually saying, all right, this yeah. isn't just going to be just, you know, me talking about tragedies in a lighthearted way. This is me going to be talking about things that I, have, I feel I are important. To say. Like, yeah. like, there seems to be an importance going Which on. Which is why when the verse completes, you know, won't you leave some things to mystery? Opening your mouth removes all doubt, so be quiet. Technology is the key to it all. Where did I lose my phone at? Doesn't really matter because you're already behind the curve. It's okay to disconnect sometimes. We're out here doing the most. Yeah. So it kind of puts the bliss in perspective when you consider that once you unplug, there is bliss to be had. Right, of course. Mm. And, and, and it's come up on this podcast alone dozens of times how connected we are and how that's a burden, and, a blessing and a burden. Yeah. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, it feels like it's a Motown piece doing all of this. That's a thing. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. enjoy it's it. Good for that. That's a good setting, I think, yeah, uh-huh. for, for just to put this message out there. Because, of course, we associate Motown not just with the many great bands from the time, but also from, you know, its usage in a lot of TV show themes. Uh, especially back in the 70s, you just, it's almost like this is sung as if it were an intro theme uh, that would just go on forever. And the sort uh, of intro theme that would be used... When you're, you're, you've got the whole family outside on the front stoop of Suburbia X that you're living inside of. This is your too many cooks thing, yeah. Matt, that you yeah. brought up before. It's essentially the one that goes on just a little bit too long. But it's a, melodically, it comes across that way because each phrase here is actually kind of different. Mm-hmm. It, it starts off the same with the same bouncy quality, but it always feels like it's going to go on longer than it does but instead it's actually just these short evolving phrases you get you get the second phrase you don't expect there's going to be more phrases to follow and it just keeps going and going and going i actually really enjoy the way the chimes the the christmas bells <laughs> that showed up in this this first verse in the intro uh, get kind of like remixed in the second verse that begins with from the minute i wake up yeah. they come back muted almost Almost solemn organesque, like they're yeah. being played in that kind of a setting instead of actually just being outright shook. Right, but the brightness of the rest of the track kind of hides that a bit. Like it doesn't sound, the track itself still doesn't sound solemn yet until we get 
to, I believe, after the second verse and the chorus to follow, we get around a minute and 47 seconds. The track, the instrumentation starts to dissolve in that interlude moment. It, it feels like it's breaking down. Well, you have like this weird synth descent. Mm-hmm. And that's your interlude. And then eventually it boils down to just the bass playing in the extreme high range. Yep. Maybe some guitar comping alongside this. Again, it's actually, considering how high he plays, it's actually very hard for me to tell what's a bass and what's a guitar uh, in these instances. But then alongside that, you just have a drone, maybe yeah. some snapping. Mm-hmm. It really just it, it really, fades uh, into the night. Yeah, it just kind of <laughs> vanishes. Um, and I, I like that kind of turn. It, it, it continues to show us foreshadowing, which he's not done, had a shortage of at this point. Each track has had a little bit of foreshadowing. And we, when we move on to track five... A fan's mail, parentheses, Tron Song Suite 2, close parentheses, featuring Soundwave, that's S-O-U-N-W-A-V-E, which we're leaving the D out. Soundwave. 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 You know, we usually do leave that D out. It's true. You roll right on past it. Yep. American. Uh, American. But this, for sure has a Motown feel as well, but it does definitely embrace the more electronic parts of this album. I feel like it's a truer blend of those two sounds than maybe the previous tracks have had. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. I mean, me and Steve were talking off the air about how we like when when older sounds reinvent themselves in a new way, and the fact that you're taking Motown into this kind of electronic sound, it feels natural, because I feel like if we had these kinds of synths and technology back then, this seems like a natural evolution, and I love when bands do that. It does, and also I like, I enjoy the pacing of this particular track for the reason that, you know, you can probably count this in four, but it really feels like it's in two. The mm-hmm. pulses are just a little bit more hypnotic if you count it in two and you just disregard that four. <laughs> and then alongside, of course, the other big hypnotic factor is that bass tone again, that yeah. sort of, I want the only one that I can compare it to, and that's Jaco Pistorius. It's just my favorite tone of, of all basses in the world. I, <laughs> It's just, it's used in, a shade of it is used in grunge, a lot of it is used in mm-hmm. certain types of alternative rock, and I guess just this is, this is the pinnacle. We've seen it at some point recently. We saw it briefly in snooze, but it didn't yeah. prize the entire record here. Uh, it's pretty much the thing. Well, there is another thing that shows up, and that is meow, meow. Meow, 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 meow. I guess that is the meow, thing. Meow, <laughs> I meant for the meow. album, but for this track, yeah, you're not going to be able to get past that. This is. But the meows, I, I was curious. I was scratching my head, and I go, what? And then the content supports it. Well, yeah, and when the vocals come in, before you read them, I just want to comment on how this, up until this point, is the most buttery these vocals have sounded. They are just so damn smooth. I love the way it just sinks right in. After you have all those meow meows, right? You, ha- you got the meows, you're kind of already giggling a little bit. <laughs> and then it just slips into that, I wish I had nine lives. I wish I had nine lives. Uh, it's it's, so, it's the, probably the so smoothest cool. moment yet. Yeah. And, of course, of course you're, I'm, I'm giggling when you're saying the content actually supports it. Because, of course, yes. yes. Cat-related imagery, right? But, 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 and but. that's the big but. Because we're getting another Motown piece, more along the lines of, like, Marvin Gaye. But it's, it's, like, a, it's like a love song. It's like if Marvin Gaye teamed with cats. It's like if Marvin Gaye teamed with Daft Punk to sing about cats. But... <laughs> Here's the words. I wish I had nine lives. I bet it feels real nice, sitting in the sun, letting the rays wash over me. No one watching over me. I do what I want. Everybody wants to be a cat. It's cool to be a cat. Disney call out one. Everything the light touches. Disney Disney call out two. two. It's where I will roar. My roar would be so powerful, I would scare off everything. 
Which I also think is a Lion King reference. Now, this is this feels like it's a straight-up joke, but let's put it in context of the record. How bad is his life that this is what he wants to be? That this is... Like an option, just yeah. I want to be a cat. I'm done with being me. Yeah, I'm starting. I want to be a cat. I'm starting to get some uh, rich escapism themes oh, on yeah. this record. And I mean, let's think about the title. The, the album's called Drunk. Why do you get drunk to escape? Bingo. That's the reason. So yeah. And yet, at the same time, of course, this is just too enjoyable of a track. Oh, but yeah. that's the whole idea of escapism, isn't it? You do something you enjoy, and then you're you're just you're off on a tail. <laughs> Base, <laughs> bad pun of the night. All right. Base that that was the good pun of the night. Okay, there's some. They're bad only going to get worse yeah, for that's that. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Bass and drums here uh, are part of the reason why I love this track so mm-hmm. much, of course, because they feel like a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sure, there's a cycle there, but cycles are a part of hypnosis, and hypnosis is a part of the game. You know, you're just supposed to sit there and visualize cats. There's no logic to this. No, you're yeah. just supposed to hear the, the, these these ideas churning about and kind of around that. Yes, it keeps going for a while, and the cool little interjections. For instance, I notice at one point at a minute and 50 seconds in after all those meows there was one hiss there's one person who just went forward with the hiss and then after that you can hear the laughter in the track because of how ridiculous the idea was and i laughed with him i I will say about this podcast if nothing else is it's educated me that there are many a song about cats as i was only familiar with schaefer's song about cats that he does called cat people but we've got one from uh aesop brock we've got now this one from thundercat i feel like there have been more than that thundercat i assume that he may have some sort of connection with cats cats. apart from your cartoon but But um, I do have an issue with this track, and that is there's a little bit of a disappointment factor because I wasn't quite hypnotized. And unlike the previous pieces, this is the first one I feel like settles. Because I wasn't just into it, I wasn't caught up in it, I I guess I, I miss the movements and just the randomness at times that I felt the previous pieces did have. Just not showing up here... For me, it was a disappointment. All right, well, depending upon, you know, who you are, what your tastes are, where they take you, then, of course, this may either hit or miss. But at the same time, just in the vein of artistic defense, because we're starting to layer on those escapism themes, I think if you weren't completely there, it's probably also a bit of the intention on the artist. And I say that for one other reason, something we didn't mention about this track, is that there is a constant layer of static Mm -hmm. over the entire thing that is just kind of plastered over everything. Static as if it's setting it back, it's removed. It's not reality. Yeah. In which case, if you're able to immerse yourself in, if you're able to step over the threshold, then that's all well and good. But I think it's just as well and good if you stay on the other side of that threshold, because maybe you're not falling into the trap that maybe he's purposely setting for you. Track six, Lava Lamp, also Soundwave, featuring Soundwave. This leans more towards an R&B sound, I feel like, especially since we continue to get that kind of bass tone that Steve's been going on about. This but is even more, more right, extreme. Right. Like, it gets even deeper than it's been before, and his vocals get even higher than they've been before. We've got some pretty intense falsettos here, too, and I like that dissonance between the two. I think it really... Uh, shapes out this track to be really interesting. And to clarify that thing about the bass and why I, I, you know, I said the last track had a little bit of it. This is probably the most exaggerated version of it. Although I think there's still more to come on this record. But it's, it's of course the same bass tone that I love, but even crisper this time, it's like it's right up against your ear or rather that your ear is right up against an amplifier. Right. That's, that's how this is mixed, which I find particularly intriguing. That wasn't what drew me in. What drew me in was the rhythm section, the beat work, mm. with the one zipper that shows up in, like, 
warehouses three blocks away kind of machinery work going on. It was a very interesting sound. More stick-driven. Lots of just clicking and clacking. Um, and which also is... the, the kick drum, which is present, that's kind of benign. Like, yeah. that's not really the big focus. That's which mixed is, low. That's where that distance starts coming in. Yeah. And the clicks, clacks sounds like, if you said well-oiled gear work previously, this actually mm-hmm. sounds like gears almost occurring. And with that zipper, that one kind of a moment, yeah. I feel like that's, that's almost like a... Just just an instance of recharge on what the drummer's doing. Yeah. I love that little bit, and I'm like, I want to meet this robot drummer that they have going on right now. It's funny, though. You mentioned the zipping. That, that reminiscent to me, or made me think because of the contents of the lyrics, like you were zipping up a sleeping bag almost. And with the song called Lava Lamp, the, basis, the base, most basic way I break this down is it's an ode to exhaustion. It's just the what he's singing about, it feels like he's absolutely and completely drained and out of sorts. And this is really showcased in the way the synths come in at the end of each of the three verses. Because Mm -hmm. it does go through uh, a three-part cycle of the same thing, but I actually really like just it culminating over and over again Mm -hmm. with a combination of two not quite distinct types of synths going on. One feels like a synthesized sitar is the closest I could come up with. Very high on the register, Mm -hmm. very sharp along the edges, and playing up and down. The other side is a longer sweep, almost like a, a, a really screwed up violin high register. Yeah. Really screwed up. And the two of them come in almost at the same instant, and one plays directly on top of the other. The violin shows up directly on top of the sitar, but it is a really, a really bright moment in otherwise dour lyrics. Like, really dour uh-huh. is in the a, best yeah. way to put them. in otherwise dour lyrics and also i think as a track this particular the, the whole setup it really has a much more serious tone than the mm-hmm. vast majority of what we've had so leading far. up to this point except yeah. maybe the first track um and i think that's sort of interesting because on the very first listen this track did not grab me the same way it did on successive listens and i i, I had that development here where you know i i had to listen to it several times before i appreciated it the melody is particularly independent almost, of everything else. At first, the melody really didn't do anything for me, although I enjoyed the climaxes within the melody. You know, whenever he says, I don't want to live without you, and the way he just belts that out, um, way of the high register. The rest of it, though, I mean, you could say it's spacious. And and for an album, I guess, that's been a little bit impulsive, uh, but never yet inconsistent, I thought it was interesting that suddenly this had so much more spaciousness in it. Uh, So I guess at first it was hard for me to make the psychological shift from the comedy earlier in the last few tracks to the sudden seriousness here. Um, That was the problem the first time around, but I really did not have that experience the next few times around. Then suddenly, I guess it, it may be because of the other tracks in this album that take similar routes, I came to accept the serious tone as, a, as another vital, parallel, important theme on this album. And I actually came to see it as more of a mature track, not as flashy, not needing to be. Yeah, I mean, I think also... I would agree with that because of getting the completionist kind of look at the album kind of gives you perspective. Yeah. And he really does decide to go down the rabbit hole he promised us in the first track. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to let go to free fall away. I won't judge you anymore because sometimes I needed to. Free fall far away, out of sight, out of mind. I'm so tired, where can I lay my head? I'll just close my eyes, hope I wake up dead. Don't want to live without you. Don't leave me out here to die. Maybe another time and space when I can look you in the face, 
far, far away, maybe in another life. That is that is like the opposite of Disney going on right now. <laughs> yeah. That is and that I, is a very serious tone. I think that's why I had some cognitive dissonance the first time around. But you know, when you pull back and you see this album in the broad, I, I think uh, I was just there. I was there for multiple listens, and I, I, I guess some of my earliest comments on this album because I always like to address both of both of the first impression as well mm-hmm. as the refined impression. It, it was one of the more more starkly opposed like it, it had developed considerably and i think you just need to let this track happen yeah i'd be i'd be inclined to agree well let's uh move on to track seven jethro which I, I, can, let me take this one all right okay this is beatless poetry that's the only way i can really describe it because while there is a rhythm while we're really still in that r&b style the actual like phrasing that he's going on with the vocals because the vocals are very much a focus in this minute and a half track it's it's so beat poetry oriented short little snippets but he drags them out so long mm-hmm. that's the only way i can say it beatless poetry i mean i would say also it does continue the vibe of lava lamp a bit as far as tonality for the overall track yeah and it the has content, a similar kind of seriousness the content definitely is there well if i could just continue on the same train of thought this actually was the track that sort of almost started evolving the the previous point of view the second yeah. I arrived at it because yeah. this track is equally serious in tone and it really stepped it up in that department. You know, my favorite thing about this track is how the rhythm, despite, I think, again, never leaving 4-4, sounds fluid as anything else. Maybe this is another case where it's really in two, uh, but if the first beat is a pickup and not is not part of the measure, that's beat four, an imaginary beat four, of course, which is the word young, then, of course, the first beat of a proper measure is drift, and a big accent there, drifting light, each syllable its own beat, and that would be, of course, three beats, then parroted by this beautiful five-note interjection uh, from this distant synth, which, of course, would be on beats four, one, two, three, four. That crossover right there, utilizing the sort of nebulous ground between beat four and beat one, where something unique happens on each, really connects all of the measures together mm-hmm. in, in a way, a, a kind of bar crossing that is a simple idea, don't hear it enough. I don't hear it enough, and that's something that really takes you away from the kind of rote four, four, splice and, and uh, you know, cut and paste nature that we see in so much other work. This is this is what I want to see from something you can get away with, with this style for, for bars and bars on end. It actually gives you freedom. It gives artists more freedom when they come up with an, an idea this simple. This is why I felt this had even raised the stakes in terms of maturity. Right, and I think... Also, considering the song doesn't go on for bars and bars and bars, it's it's an interesting no. and compact way to do it. Yeah. But he does really experiment with those five, sometimes four, but five beats of non-vocalizing. Yeah. Because when we hit um, about halfway through the lyrical content, warm me up. When he says the word warm, there's just, it, it's just a, a real tonal shift mm-hmm. as the beat the piano really show up in full force and really start flushing out the entire piece and then this was i think the this subsequent was, measures we get the additional beat work just really going ham the kind of bass with per- percussion oh this is some of the coolest bass work that shows up on the album oh yeah the rolling bass is uh, especially the fact that the bass sounds particularly sharp next to the vastness of everything else that was mm-hmm. what was kind of interesting here but if if uh, we have the moments correct <laughs> between me and you john then that moment on on the word warm warm me up was about 27 
seven seconds in, and it's when we get that new instrument in the right ear. And so it is kind of a, a keyboard or scale-happy synth, up and down, phasing, but never losing the pulse. And then there's a that's more in the right ear, so then there's a response to it uh, in the left ear. And that's when you just get caught up in the eddies of this track. Uh, later on, of course, there are, they, they do do other things. They vocalize. There's, the cymbals really kick up for a while. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, I was really enchanted by it. I think to the very end, there, it's, it's not that we really move to a whole new section per se. It's just that we do break it down. We, we trade parts and we get softer and we build to these rich harmonies in the upper register as we really fade out the track at the end. And it's another case where the beat, the drum line, actually leaves, and we're just getting just lighter tapping and a rumble. Now, this is actually the second time they're using this trick of sort of de deconstructing the track at the end. But because we're not really sitting on this for a very long time, it's one of those instances that having a deconstructing outro allows you to showcase particular pieces of your line, particular pieces of your complexity, very well and it's it's working again and i'm it's hard i'm hard pressed to say that a trick like this works again so quickly after being used well i think the difference here is that while it's a similar trick don't forget that those kind of synthy 8-bitty tones that come in in that outro that kind of just pepper it do change it a little bit it's a similar trick but we're getting some um Je ne sais quoi, yeah. thrown right on top of it. I don't know if it's full je ne sais quoi. I don't want to go that far. But my, my point is... <laughs> Keeping it, it vague, I see. <laughs> I think it, it's a great way to kind of speckle the outro and pepper us as we move into track eight, which is day and night, which is... I want to. I don't know if I don't. I can't decide if it's an intro to track nine or an interlude between seven and nine. Well, first of all, I want to say just one thing about the manner in which we discuss these tracks. Is now that we're working in a, a shorter scale, and this was certainly a shorter scale. This is only at thirty-seven seconds. This next track, you know, you, you can hear the the struggle to try to fit the overall theme in. Yeah. Because because this is what we certainly struggled at early in the series. I think it's, I think it's flowing over us a little bit better now. Well, I think also the lyrical content here is clearer, whereas Flying Lotus also didn't have, had a lot less lyrical content. And so I think that's been helpful had, here. Yeah, less comparatively, but yeah. very same uh, songwriting structure. Sure, for sure, yeah. Though Day and Night doesn't actually have any words No, whatsoever, it's instrumental, yeah. But I don't know if it's an interlude, an introduction. I feel like, while it, I, I do not say it's an introduction for the next track, I feel like it's an introduction for a stronger narrative in the next you know, part of the yeah, track. Yeah, like the, the previous part of the album was day, and now we're going into the night. Because, of course, it distorts everything. Yeah, this that's is, true. I mean, it distorts the very beauty that they're trying to create. The beauty that you can actually, you can actually still hear being forced through here. You get those opening hoots, almost yeah. like an owl, this hoo-hoo, right? And then yeah. it's sort of kind of... On each and every one of the, that second pitch there, it dips down slightly, almost like the Doppler effect. You feel this is the uncoupling of this effect. It's just removing everything that was nice and pretty and, and even just enjoyable, face value in the last few tracks, and that you still would hear if it weren't for this Doppler effect. Yeah. It pitch goes down, everything just feels like it's getting drawn. And it's also still got a muted quality that I think it's a through line for some of the more important yet less prominent parts of the music that have been showing up in this album because they seem to always be hinting at that very serious just narrative that we keep like showing up in spurts and starts and yeah. more defined because this this to me felt like 
a siren or a klaxion from from far away. Like yeah. it's getting farther away. It's it's a it's a cop car racing three streets away, four streets, five streets. It's heading uptown, downtown, yeah. away from you. Yeah. And it also has a lot of space that we didn't really have before, especially with that pew kind of a sound effect that comes in. Sound but, effect, sound bite, I don't know what else to call it. But yet it's just as hypnotic, which is why I don't want to completely remove the smile off my face here. Right. You know, I, you can feel that the the intention is to, I guess, add a little more of a, a seriousness. But we did already kind of have that in the last few tracks. This actually, I, I, I have to confess, by 35 seconds in, I just, I felt like an idiot listening to this piece because I repeated it several times in a row and I, I loved the syncopation of that howling mm-hmm. as it, uh, does that little Doppler effect. And then alongside the funk guitars in the background, just completing the full phrase, I just lost myself in it. I, I kind of wanted quite a bit more, maybe, of, of this 37-second piece. So I'm not completely eliminating that critique if we're going to talk about time and length, but I'll take what I got. And if the goal was to tease, then yes, I've been teased. I mean, I would disagree, and I think I got... I, I at this point at least, as we review, never felt like I didn't get enough of what I wanted. I feel like everything was purposely and precisely the length it should be. But that said, I can hear where you're coming from. This was a really great piece. Yeah, it's just the impulse. You hear right. something you like, sometimes you want more of it. Right. That's all. But I repeated it. See? Easily done. But moving on from this to track nine, Show You the Way, which features Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. Oy. Which is exciting. So here's the thing that, while I said and agreed with John that this is that shift on the album from day to night, maybe, here, the only thing that I could associate with night about this is it's that smooth groove kind of a thing. <laughs> that's, well, that's a very overpronunciation of smooth groove. Smooth. Because there is some breakup in that. Specifically, the choruses. The choruses have, albeit a muted trumpet, it's still a trumpet showing up, sort of like a fanfare kind of a piece that breaks it up a little, that, that keeps it from being just a nice little wave, and it shows a little bit of a crest going on here. Well, that's where the things that I like about this track start to get a little too numerous, <laughs> because, well, if we're just going to talk about the first 26 seconds, the I, and then I would have probably dismissed it maybe as being a little more traditional funk and, and R&B. Uh, I really liked it from 26 seconds forward, and of course that is the chorus, which is interesting because it's sort of a two-parter chorus. The first portion of it, you get the falsetto singers that croon in these high, slow phrases that are then interjected by that that piercing brassy synth or trumpet or whatever it is that just climbs upward to nowhere and it just stops and that's the that's the response to those falsettos but then the second phrase the second part of the chorus because it's so different uh which you'll first hear at 37 seconds in that starts flanking you in other words you get a shift in the panning for the Mm -hmm. falsettos were kind of forward front and center now they're surrounding you you get 180 it's to the left to the right and this new phrase more mid-range vocals not as falsetto this is a little bit warmer. Matter of fact, he's, he's breaking it down for you. But it's the accent marks. The accent marks are the biggest thing. That's the thing that I just can't get over in this track uh, that I was singing along to nonstop. It's, it's the way he breaks up, of course. Well, just look at the first two lines. And I'm just going to talk about the part at 36 seconds, the lower, the, the mid-range vocals. A burning light on the edge of dark where no one can tell they are worlds apart. But of course, the pacing here, it's never on the beat, never at all. If you were to count this, it, it's like, yenda and uh, yenda and uh, right, right before I snap. That's why I'm never saying the one, the two, the three, the four. It's all the little in-betweens. And then, of course, by the time it gets to the last one, the accents 
a one E and a two E and a <laughs> like this accent, the fourth sixteenth uh, note, and then of course the second sixteenth note, and then the fourth and the second, the fourth and the second. A lot of that stuff, um, and that's the part that I cannot get out of my head. It's it's that stresses those stresses in in the feet of the chorus that I, I every single time the chorus comes back, which comes back of course between every single featured artist, and that's addicting. But I agree that the rest of it is kind of smooth. The keyboard, the beat work, the bass, anything that's going on during the verses is kind of low-key. Not even kind of, it's really low-key and background work. It's because the verses are meant, you're meant to focus on the lyrics. And of course the verses, we have Thundercat with the first verse, and he introduces himself and then inserts applause for himself, which is real classy. It's not Not applause, applause. Uh, Yeah. It's your boy Thundercat. Golf clap. Right. Golf clap. And it's a jazz club. There's never a lot of people. <laughs> and he sings his verse, and then we get Kenny Loggins for the second verse, which Thundercat introduces him. Golf applause. Yeah. Jazz club applause. Yeah. And then the final verse is Michael McDonald, who also Thundercat introduces. It's very much like a an old school like 70s or 80s uh, variety show, and he's the host. And I just love the structure of that. It, it's cheesy in the best way for me. I like the words that they're saying. I particularly am fond of Michael McDonald's work. But this is a big but. Outside the courses, musically, I was kind of bored because I don't feel like there's a whole lot of everything else that I was loving about the exchanges and the, the experimentation going on. Well, the experimentation is essentially the fact that there are featured artists. And yeah. that it's a little bit of a joke on featured artists. And I do kind of appreciate that joke because it gets a little bit overplayed. And this is almost like uh, it's a mocking it a little bit. Um, by While at the same time doing exactly what those tracks all set out to do. And that is feature the artist in question. And I do think they all work. I think they all work beautifully. And of course, it's, again, a, a case of raising the stakes. You hear yeah. the first artist and, and it's like, oh, well, all right. Thundercat, sure. Thundercat. Well, that's what the album is. It's all Thundercat stuff. Then Kenny Loggins, all right, that higher falsetto, a little bit more extreme, but yeah, it makes sense. It seems like the direction this would go in. It's all falsetto anyway. And then final, finally, Michael McDonald, which I, I, honestly, it almost goes back to a joke with me. I would hear Michael, me and my friend, we'd go to different you know stores and we'd hear Michael McDonald playing on the radio wherever we went. I forget, it was that big song that, that he did, the, the biggest single that he had out. I don't remember what it was, but this is already like a decade ago and it was following me about. And just because of that sort of comedic flair that he puts whenever he go deep, goes deep down to his lungs to belt out, you know, the, the climax of every track, it became a little bit of a trope. And that here, I guess, you know, years later, hearing it again in this context where it makes sense, it was it was definitely put a smile on my face. But I would agree that not a lot is being done musically outside of that. I think the choruses are really where my, my heart is wrapped up in this track. Yeah, I would agree musically it doesn't do very much either. But again, I can't help but grin from ear to ear real big every time I hear this song, because it is just so cheeky, and I like that. I like that this is clear and presently a joke, he knows it's a joke, and he's having so much fun with it. Like, imagine being in that room as Thundercat with these two legendary vocalists and songwriters. It's just, it's gotta be fun regardless. But the content is still serious. Yeah. Or should be taken seriously. Uh, Specifically, verse three with Michael McDonald. Wake up and dream, tear down the wall, of all you believe that might not be true. Long as love lies waiting there, just hold your face into the light. Though right now you might not know why, long as love lies waiting, 
they ain't known our way, baby. <laughs> I don't, grammar gets yeah, a little yeah, bit screwed up well, at the end. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Because it makes it fit. This is one bit. of those cases where the vocals are adding to the song, yeah. but the words are adding to the album. Sure. Like there's something like I didn't get it the first time. I didn't quite get it the second time. But when we did our major listen here and we started doing the dissection and I started reading along and we were commenting back and forth, the real heavy undercurrents that are in every song showed up kind of like a like a stop sign in the middle of the night. Like just your lights hit it, boom, flash, you see it. You're sort of being forced to take notice of it at this point, or at least I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm really loving the fact that I can laugh and I can think, and I'm going to do a little bit of crying. I mean, that's what good comedy does. It does all those things, more or less. I got another smile at the very end of the song, and that's, of course, the closing, the little coda. The yeah. thing he adds at the end that's just like he stepped up at the very end of his set to say something quickly to the audience. Uh, hey, how's it going? This is your boy Thundercat. If you're going to fill your water bottle with vodka, always make sure to have a friend with a bottle that actually has water in it. <laughs> and it's so it's so, the volume of this part yeah. is so low because the music is still fading out over yeah. this. It gave me kind of not even for the t- content of of that particular coda, but actually just the the tone of it sounded like sounded like that jazz club vibe. Yeah. That, really, that that speaking volume breaking it down to the audience. Thanks he, guys for being here. He really sounded like the band leader at a jazz club yeah. the whole time, and I think that's really what's great for the gag. Um, but let's uh, mosey on to our next track, track ten, "Walk On By," which is featuring Kendrick Lamar. It's a little bit different in the beat work. Once again, we're getting a, so, little, a little bit of a different texture. Sort of um, a clicking beat with some some sticks again. There's some heavy sticks. electronics here. We're getting what I call beeps, bloops, and boops. Essentially, these kind of... <laughs> not the beep sweeps, and creeps? No, not, oh, not space balls. But, but no, seriously, the, these kind of electronic tones... Um, had focused impacts and a kind of texture to them that we had not heard before. It was delicate. Yeah. And not everything on this album has been delicate. Sometimes it's been soft, but, you know, everything kind of had kind of a punch. And Thundercat, with his real odd pitchiness that he's going on here, works extremely well yeah. to keep the, the delicate nature, the kind of gossamer nature that's going on, from falling apart on it. I like the fact that he's no longer trying to croon. He's going back to that... That, that track one, just like oddity to it, like a little bit on yeah. the robotic side, which I guess was kind of good for robot ho. I don't know how to say it. I still don't know how to say it. Robot, robot ho. Robot, robot ho. Robot, robot ho. And so you got the, the, the backdrop sounding kind of robotic in and of itself. Just the sort of one and two, three, four, and one and two. And these little pops, I, I guess that's what I find so delicate about this. And yet there's a surprising, mournful component uh, that has kind of returned, and that's, of course, those lyrics. At the end of it all, no one wants to drink alone. I, it's, again, you can't help but just sing along to this in some way. And it's such a simple, it, it feels like it's been done a million times. At the same time, it also feels really unique here. I, I can't explain that. I particularly fond of the self-harmonizing that goes on in that chorus when he says no one wants to drink alone, where he actually is doubling himself to give us two voices drinking alone. (laughs) I thought that was just a great interjection. And I really, really love that first verse and how he presents it. Fragmented memories, sentences incomplete. I mean, he's actually explaining his singing style right away. Also, I believe right before that, you know, you get a really stark pauses. And the pauses all throughout this track are actually fairly stark. You just, 
you have that sense of of lonesomeness again, which is why I, I say that's sort of a mournfulness, mournful feeling here. Um, and especially when you consider the fact that the the figurations here have ac- sort of returned to the apart from just the popping, they've gone a little deeper now. We've kind of returned to that Super Metroid thing I said, mentioned earlier, warbly darkness. I, I I can't really describe it beyond that, but as a whole, the track is very very thin, very very removed. They make you feel alone with the music, even if there are people there. Um, that was, I think, true for the three of us when we were listening together. Yeah, I mean, I think the focus for me on this track was the words, and specifically Kendrick Lamar's rap part. For me, I focused on that a lot more because, again, the music wasn't doing a ton of different things, and so it almost made his rap be more like spoken word or poetry. Well, that's right. Just just before we get to that, something about the, the context in which that sits. You know, that's because true. everything else was so thin, suddenly he comes forward like... I know we overuse the spotlight metaphor, but this is like dark and pitch black room with just one with, person. With, with one person, yeah. It's just a sure. vague sense of things still going on in the background. You do have basically the same stuff. It feels like even they turned the volume down. And he's inordinately loud next to how soft this track is. Yeah. Which can seem a little sharp because he has he's he enunciates, I noticed. And it doesn't always enunciate in every single word, but considering the volume, it really sounds like every word is sharp. It's very he focused. He sticks the yeah. landing. But that's where, as much as I actually really enjoy the rap by itself and the content of the rap, I don't like it in this particular piece. Because I feel like he's just tearing apart the fragile gossamer web of of beeps, boops, and sweeps. I already forgot the word she used. I'm okay with that. (laughs) And I I don't feel like even though we get... A later chorus, even though there is a bit of a, a kind of a rebuild, I don't really feel like we hit the same levels on the last chorus that we got in the beginning. And it's a little bit disappointing. But, like I said, content-wise, I really enjoy it because while Thundercat is talking about, like, the pains in his life, Kendrick is really talking about how he's actually trying to right the wrongs how of his life. How he's grown, yeah. Of how he's going away from... The previous things, when he was being a little bit more accurate at bagging dimes, now he's bagging rhymes. What phrase like that? Yeah, that's it's a, paired well. It's not a very new rhyme, but it's a good rhyme. Well, yeah, for what the content it's, that's it's, going on. It's, I don't think the rhyme in itself would have had me if it was not for his flow. So yeah. to me, uh, I, I think the the subject matter was a little bit secondary to the flow itself, and that's only because of the speed at which he sings. You know, there's been it varies with me for, for, with rappers. Some some rappers, I hear it. I hear the story coming out immediately, and then other times you really have to be a reader. You need to be reading along, uh, which I think is a little bit of a failure when it comes to music. But that's only a secondary thing here because it doesn't. When it comes to the music, I still enjoy his delivery a lot. Actually, just to read the very, very beginning of that, right up to the line you mentioned, I, I it's, even reading you can hear the rap in your head. From my eyewitness binoculars to Argentina and Africa, we mastered the pressure, hazardous, harassing us. You laugh at us. More accurate at bagging dimes. Now we're bagging rhymes. There's just something about this that I, I I guess maybe it's because of everything I mentioned before. Part of it is the mixing. Part of it is the context of the rest of the track. I, I felt too invested in this and how I, his delivery made it seem purposeful. Not every rapper makes me feel like it's purposeful. A lot of times it, it the, the rhyming scheme almost seems indiscriminate. The, uh, the meter seems indiscriminate. One part that shows up a little bit later. When the line becomes thin, be a killer or a fireman. Fill up the lavish pen if I needed to right my wrongs. 
I love the use of the word right in that particular for situation. Double meeting, that yeah. was a perfect word uh-huh. for that situation. Things like this don't come along every day. This is a very, very well written. I, I have my problems with it. I like it sort of secularly, individually, <laughs> by itself. Whereas I, I don't agree with John. I like it in the context of the song. I think its power stands where it comes in the track and on the album. Um, you know, I, I can understand where you're coming from. I think here the music was intended to take not necessarily a back seat, but to let the words stand forward. And I'm okay with that, especially when it's someone like Ken Le- Kendrick Lamar doing such great work. And the only thing I wasn't quite able to see is, of course, how the, the question of writing writing wrongs comes back to, you know, at the end of it all, no one wants to drink alone. I went from lonesome, lonesomeness to feeling um, obligation. And that was an interesting pair. Well, I, yeah, I think that it's this idea of when you accept responsibility and you grow as a person, it can be lonely because there are larger groups of immature individuals running together in a pack and you kind of step away from that pack to grow as a person. I think it's something to do with that. But uh, I digress a little. I think that the density of this rap part is what I really dig you know it's why i like aesop rock so much when we did his record because he threw a lot of interesting things in a small amount of space and i think it works here all in all true but we're i mean that was a very hyper-focused personal album right this is trying to bring a lot of things into one right but i would still say kendrick lamar's verse is hyper-focused and personal sure if you want to take that segment absolutely let's go to track 11 black with three k's (laughs) three k's which is symbolic obviously and this is featuring soundwave um the intro here to this track, instrumentally, I think is the closest we get to a prog kind of sound, I feel like. I mean, I actually would call this track as a whole psychedelic rock. Like, straight out, just psychedelic well, rock. I would late say, seven, but I would late le- 60s, early 70s, like that burgeoning idea. But I would lean more to a progier version of that, I think. Well, that's where prog comes from. I mean, All right, fine. Recent events taken me <laughs> to a different direction because it was only two weeks ago we did a math rock album. That's true. And uh, there's a specific rhythmic reason why this, is, this connects me to that. Of course, that was actually extremely by snooze. And this has kind of a mathy start to it, especially when you consider the whole thing is in 5-4 uh, and a good portion of that album, uh, although it never stayed in 5-4 for any <laughs> given length of time, that was a, a very huge component, probably one of the more dominant time signatures on that album, and they created a lot of great rhythms from it. So, you know, this is just another track about process more than any other. It's also the emphasis of the verbalization being on, like, a three-beat count of that 5-4. Like, well, that's the whole idea. 5-4 is considered, you're meant to count it in kind of a three-and-two fashion. So, yeah, that's sort of inherent. Having, but having that as the focus doesn't just give it, like, I did not see a 5-4. I did not see that kind of a beat because it was hard to get away from just, like, enjoying the little bass and drums between the vocal three beat. So I would just ignore those two extra ones. I would ignore that as counting because that was just really pretty. And then we go back to three beats. And then it's really pretty, and then we go back to three beats. True. Well, if there was a stronger accent, I would have said maybe it was in a mixed meter, like three and two, three and two. But the accent was a little less strong. Some of this can be argued, but I still felt it in five. It's 
One of the reasons, of course, that this really works for me in this track is not just the fact that, hey, cool time signature. It's it's because the, the keyboard comping, you know, continues over the vocals beneath the 5-4, and it like much like I said, actually, in uh, the Snooze album, it's sort of a canvas for longer melodies to really expand and shake themselves loose of the usual constraints. And 4-4 really is the biggest constraint you have. I think it's very limiting on melodies. I think 5-4 expands your your consciousness, expands what you what you believe melodies can do. Uh, so yeah, that's as true in Snooze as it was here. My, my, my only critique in this piece, though, is the obvious one. Because they showed me a bigger glimpse of something, I would have probably preferred a bigger track in this particular case. This is fairly short, and these chords at times felt like they were stepping out of the, the cube briefly, and then they were being shoved back in. And I think that maybe robbed it of some potential, but I still think this is one of my favorite tracks, compositionally, really, really high on this album. Our biggest complaint of Prague tends to be the rapidity that a musician will go through different good ideas. And if there's a lot of... I want to say that there might be a lot of Prague leanings on this album, just the idea, the concept of what Prague is, and the approach that's going on right here. I, I still don't feel like that's become an issue, that we haven't gotten enough of any one thing. I'm still extremely satisfied in all the pieces that have shown up. In fact, the only time I've been dissatisfied is when they're dwelling, mm. is when Thundercat is actually dwelling on an idea, as good of an idea as it may be. Which is really interesting because I, I think that some of my turnarounds earlier on this album were actually a result of multiple listens making me feel like those sections really did need to dwell. Like there was space that this album maybe was the biggest thing that I, w I was lacking in the broad. So when I finally look back and like three minutes for me is actually that on this album, relatively speaking, is a long time. And when they pick that certain groove and when you do sit with that, even if it is just one track, it's exactly the amount of time that you needed before you get this, this uh, cavalcade of new ideas. I think this moment, though, on the album was kind of needed since we weren't quite sure where we were hovering between dark and light. This is definitely a brighter track, at least instrumentally. We have the the falsetto singing back again, which we have is scat guitar work kind of going on too. Which is and and the singing style here now, of course, is obviously Thundercat's bread and butter. But I like the way he holds notes on this track. I mean, some of the the notes are held for two and three seconds, and it's glorious you know it, it really is just great the way he can manipulate his voice and he does it it's seemingly effortlessly yeah i want to stress this this is definitely one of if not maybe my favorite track on the album just because of the composition there the the harmonies are full of fleeting beauty by the time those falsettos step in and they don't really uh they don't really sacrifice anything to the end of the track i, I really should have broken down some examples but alas time in the day <laughs> i do want to read these lyrics to launch us into track 12 though because it, it does feel like a really interesting uh, midpoint. Travel through the light. Holy, holy, take me to the highest mountain and the lowest seas. Glory of your light, break through. I want to experience all the light has to offer me. Bathing in your glow, patterns in the light, pressing your frontiers. Totally reborn, don't be afraid if death will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. Eye, eye. Track 12. Tokyo. <laughs> It's this almost like is, they're restarting the comedy at this point. Yes, this track is the essence of Tokyo bottled in music form and lyrical form. It's, I mean, so from the moment... That's a bold statement. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I don't, it I, is the embodiment of the fetishization of the Tokyo 
culture. Sure. I mean, it, it is definitely a little watered down here as far as we're, we're making broad strokes. I, but, I would definitely raise hell if anyone tried to summarize New York in terms of Frank Sinatra uh, and Jay-Z. You know, that's not the end of it all. Fair enough, although I'm sure people have tried. Yes, they have. I, I, I have spoken out. Um, so yeah, restless nights in Tokyo. Want to hear all the sounds and see all the sights? From the Champs-Élysées to the Gundam Cafe? Gonna eat so much fish, I think I'm gonna be sick. Gonna blow all my cash on anime, yes. Don't try to stop me, because I'm over 9,000. Just point me to the pachinko machines. I think I'm Kinshiro. I think that I'm Goku. Can I just stay one more day? Restless nights in Tokyo. Oh my god, it's Tokyo. It was premeditated. Tried to get someone pregnant. It wasn't her fault, I'm just kind of psychotic. Left me on my own, I would never come back. I'd probably hide in the suicide forest, shit. This all started when I was a boy. I went to the dentist and he gave me a toy. It was Dragon Ball Z, a wrist slap bracelet. Goku fucking ruined me. A love affair with Tokyo. That, that's a story unto itself, unlike it we really haven't had, I mean, what's uh, except maybe the Kendrick Lamar part. Yeah, it, what's interesting though, be it real or not, truthful or not, the, the way it kind of wraps around back on itself, that it ends with the past and starts in the present, it's just, it's an interesting construction. Uh, instrumentally, we've got, you know, 8-bit sounds, we've got, you know, a, a fast pace, we've got this uh, kind of uh, feeling of movement, like on a light cycle or something fast, you know, it, it's just, it feels electric, it feels fast-paced. It's pretty sporadic, I yeah. think, is maybe what you're getting toward. Uh, yeah, I could repeat your beeps and boops thing, I'd rather not do that. But the the galloping beatbox, I think, is what yeah. makes this uh, particularly, um, you, you feel, you see the lights, you see the sound. So, of course, it's definitely a, uh, a success in terms of, uh, in terms of visualization. But the interesting thing is, of course, that uh, that little twist that he always throws in the end here, his little comedic twist. Um, what I gather is, of course, the, a, a bracelet that he got from the dentist got him into Dragon Ball Z, which got him into anime, which made him want to go to Tokyo, which made him get a girl pregnant, <laughs> uh, which apparently was not the intention because he's psychotic in doing so. And maybe all those reasons are, psych are part of his psychosis. Yeah, it, it, it's... Again, true or not. Right. True or not. It's it's an interesting way to structure a song, and it it gives me a laugh, but it also makes you think a little bit. Like, it's this idea of chain of events and consequences, which has come up on this album before also, which I think is interesting. We just discussed, I think, at the end of the other week, back in performance by Agecoin, about stacking tastes, you know, and trying to undo what's already been done. Yeah. Well, I, of course, the big analogy there floating around is if it wasn't something so so mild as, as music tastes and things like that, what if it was of life decisions? Yeah. Big events that you had changed one minor little thing, didn't get into that thing, then all of a sudden didn't meet that person, never had that influence... Never did that horrible, regretful thing. I don't know. It was the characterization of the city through the music that drew me in more than the references, which I really enjoy. Right. I really enjoy the references. But it was it was that deep rumble that you kind of skipped over. No, I, just I just, in this particular bit. case, I have to confess, I, I wanted to get to the theme here because uh, when I said the music was sporadic, it's just fitting the story. It's not doing much else for me. Well, I feel like that rumble is just like a representation of asphalt and cars upon it. Sure. And then the bright little twinkles and the trumpets that show up again, those synth trumpets show up again. Yeah, you got these brassy the, interludes. Or the wooden tapping would be... Uh, just anything from the parks to the neon lights to all the general just like in your faceness that 
maybe not Tokyo in particular, but a metropolis center in general will be throwing at you. It's, it's a, I love it's a the Wii character. of bedroom. That's what it is. I, I wouldn't go that far. But it <laughs> well, is that's really, characterizing. It's really a, a strong character by itself that, yeah, maybe the music is fitting the story a little bit too much, but I think that it actually does a lot by itself as a metropolis that allows the story to flourish as opposed to supporting the story. Mm. I mean, I would agree with that, I think, ultimately. I think we're we're on the precipice of something even more interesting about this album as it crests into a different kind of narrative and uh, proselytization as far as it, content goes. Which is why I think maybe connecting these are starting to become a little bit of a problem for me because they seem a little bit loose at best, but then whenever they're stated, they're stated hard and firm and also think about when you're <laughs> drunk you get a lot of ideas and things you want to say but there's not always coherence no, that's between true them. you can't really string them together all right you also sometimes shouldn't be saying them it's that's that social, also true it's yeah that social filter that goes away well yeah. let's move on to track 13 uh jameel's space ride emphasis is important here and this is uh featuring lewis cole again and this is pretty short as well only at a minute and nine seconds um but it's a jaunty minute and nine seconds. It's not jaunty. It's an um, it, it it it's an introduction. We got a theme song earlier. Now this is this is PBS level. This is like just shy of being like Sesame Street, Reading Rainbow. It's like perfect for the like nineteen eighties. Those were jaunty. But it, this is like perfect for nineteen eighties educational I need to, exploration. I need to interject this one particular thing because of course, just last week we did an a extremely eighties album. Yeah. And you know. I wanted it to not become about the decade, even though that whole album was decade-focused. I would be inclined to agree. Yeah, pull from a decade, then don't don't just slap me with nostalgia. I don't really get a nostalgic vibe when I listen to this album, you know? No. This album here, even though it's got <gasps> R&B Motown things, it's not steeped in it, though. And I feel like because of Flying Lotus's hyper-modern production value, it, really, it's it's in a, a whole new decade. This I, is 2010's material. I would argue that, that there are definitely moments where I'll get a little bit of that, but definitely not to the same extreme we did last week. Um, this song, instrumentally, on the face of it, seems pretty goofy, but it's actually not. There's some uh, very important and interesting things being said here. It is a fingers and ears, la, 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 kind of a moment in someone's life where he wants to, well, we'll get right into it. I want to go right. I'm safe on my block. Except for the cops. Will they attack? Would it be because I'm black? I want to fly away into space and into the sun with all those spirits and space dust and aliens where we belong. Fuck yeah. That moment of fuck yeah, yeah. is something you wouldn't really see on Mr. Rogers, but with the keyboard paralleling his yeah. syllables, like really just accenting as he's going along, that heavy play really does keep that jaunting, happy-go-lucky, gleeful style while he's like... I'm not safe because I'm black. It's a nice uh, answer, a nice response to profiling. I mean, someone who wants to be away from all the bullshit. I mean, I can relate to that only as far as my natural melanin takes me, and that's not very far, no, except, for, except sure. for a lot of birthmarks. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll add up to something. But uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I think this is a pretty beautiful response to just that whole discussion. Is I think in a lot of things, you would just want to step away. And of course, Jamil's space ride. Just go off into space. Just go do your thing. Go do whatever you want to do and don't think about reality. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a, a little, lot. Of, some of us can't. Some of us, yeah, it's still escapism. Some of us can't certainly can't afford that. Uh, but at the same time, we all wish it, and I think it's uh, fair, at least for just a minute and nine seconds, to express that wish and express it really strongly because it's a blast to listen to. Yeah. I feel happy listening to this. You read lyrics, you feel like you shouldn't be, but you know yeah. it. Light as a bird, through all the bullshit with the wind in my face, miss me with that nonsense, free as a bird, light as the wind, just leave me alone, let me go on my space ride. Yeah. Get off my back, man. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> no other way to say it. All right, on to track 14, Friend Zone, featuring Monopoly. It's Monopoly with a slash uh-huh. middle. I love the instant we start getting the kind of doom bell that's being presented from an alarm clock. That beginning sound has a very, the bell doth toll, just like really in your face. But the general actual register that it's working in is is like a telephone or alarm clock or something like that. It's both insistent and annoying. Yeah. But annoying in the way where you're going to throw something. Alongside, like, a lot of bubbling and a lot of phasing, but mm-hmm. it's all just leading you up to the full-blown bass drop. And yeah. the second you get that ba- bass drop, I know that sounds a little bit shallow, like a, a shallow interpretation of this track, but uh, musically, with with the, the constant thumps and the constant arpeggiation, I was completely lost in this. This was just kind of... I'm not going to say it's more of the same. It's an exaggeration of all the things on this album that I have really enjoyed. I was just, I was just grooving along to it. How, how long was this particular track? This was 3 minutes and 13 seconds. Well, 3 minutes and 13 seconds didn't seem like 3 minutes and 13 seconds, which is a long track on this album. I actually did not see what the bass represented till pretty much the end of the track. Mm-hmm. And it was because I, I recognized the bass as that, that kind of wah-wah bass. Specifically yeah. that. Specifically, it's going to be kind of kitschy in that way. But the content of the friend zone of what this track is saying lyrically makes that the most mocking piece of music I've heard in I don't know how long. Because it's the person he's talking about. I'm your biggest fan, but I guess that's just not good enough. Is it because I wear my hair weird or because I like to play Diablo? Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Because I really don't want to have to spell it out. And next time you call me, I'm going to sit and stare at that screen, waiting for the call to end. You stuck me in the friend zone. That's that bullshit. I'm going to play Diablo either way. You can come or you can go. I love that. And he just keeps going. He keeps going on because I'd rather play Mortal Kombat. Anyway, hey, I'm all about my Johnny Cage. If you're not bringing tacos, I suggest you start to walk away. Bitch, don't kill my vibe. I can tell you've kind of got uncomfortable, so let me break it down for you. Don't call me, don't text me after 2 a.m. Unless you plan on giving me some, because I got enough friends. Like, he's pissed. He's upset. (laughs) And we're not going to quite talk about the friend zone yet. Well, so here's the thing about the narrative of this track, is it's very one-sided, obviously. Besides the Wawa bass, you're getting his perspective. So it either either is this exaggeration of a basement-dwelling, video-game-playing you know, guy who thinks he's got it all together, or it's legit, like, he's just a nerdy guy who likes games and is tired of BS. Either way, though... From my little bit of reading, he's a nerdy guy that likes video games and is tired of some BS. Right. I'm gonna say on that I think we've established that, I think, from reading what we've read. But I think it's still interesting either way, because you can, not knowing his history, take it either way, but... 
Either way, it's delivered in a very tongue-in-cheek, holier-than-thou kind of attitude, which I think also adds to the song itself. It's definitely holier-than-thou, but it also, you know, is kind of at the breaking point mm-hmm. of what clearly has been a lot of BS, it would seem. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, 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 I come and go on this particular topic. Uh, I, I've certainly read a lot of the, the, the public service articles that are out in the works uh, from the female perspective, which, of course, do not sympathize in any way, shape, or form, and see friend zoning as a mischaracterization. It seems, though, here he actually has tried to break free of the friend zone. Like, he actually has tried to do something more. Like, up to the point where he hasn't just come out and said, I want to be with you as more than just a friend. Because he really, he says the one line, because I really don't want to have to spell it out. Like, that moment in your life is a bit of terror when you're going to open yourself up to that individual. And you can give as many hits as you want, but it seems like this other person that he's he's you know, emoting towards, he's not outright talking to her, but he's emoting towards, seems to have missed all the hints and just relegated him to friend. That said, though, I mean, we don't have her side. She could have clearly said she's not interested and he's still pursuing. But I mean, with the exception of the after 2 a.m. phone calls and the, I don't know, multiple minutes of bass. At the end, it's all besides the point because it's just a really, really enjoyable track. And you almost, you, you do at least feel for his side because of, of the music, at least. It sounds punchy enough. It sounds full of panache. And then by the time he says at the very end, I will throw you out like garbage. I mean, you are almost rooting for him at this point, even though, because that's the character you've been given, yeah. you know? And yeah, I don't know. That's, we've, been, we've, been, we've had this discussion before when it concerns art, of course. Sometimes you're just, you're, you're being given this, the, the, the perspective, and thus that's, that either works for you or it doesn't. Right, you're given the heroic perspective. Yeah. Whether it's actually truly heroic or not is another story. And from here, we're going to go on to track 15, Them Changes, which from the get, the instrumentation has a sauntering pace that we've not really gotten so far. It's moving in a way that a lot of other tracks have not. It is the first time we're using the word saunter, and I will agree <laughs> with you on that one. I think it's mostly because of the kind of urgent tapping that's going on. It, it feels like there's no longer are we in kind of a passive, easygoing area that's got emotion, that's got sadness and happiness and everything in between. Now it feels like the music is actually stepping in to start representing a lot of the lyrical content we've been dissecting. Yeah, um, I mean, once again, I really, I really feel like I'm overusing the word hypnosis uh, because when it just comes to that all-consuming... It's like a, a, a gulp. It's like a gulp almost. It's like a musical gulp. I call and it, it goes a on. Whoop. Whoop, 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 whoop. I don't know. Whatever you want to, whichever consonant you prefer to put in the beginning. Uh, the point is the is the parabola. <laughs> That's the the whole idea behind this. But then the way after the piano slips in, you know, it just starts reproducing what the bass was doing. And once again, I'm 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 digging this from the hypnotic perspective. I also dig it from the ethereal perspective. After we kind of shift the feel here, it almost starts taking on a beachside vibe as we kind of break and then go back to the other side of things. But I, I don't know. I, I will say that maybe the as far as an idea, a fresh idea, this track was just a little bit lacking. It just that one sound, really. That's it, that's new. It doesn't do too much outside the interlude. That is different. The interlude, I feel like, it really became a band distorted as opposed to compositional work with synthesizer and other input with electric keyboard. It felt like it got a lot more natural. It's I, I wrote down... 
distorted Bambi. Like, you screwed Bambi up, like, completely. Oh. It became a, just a little bit of a horror film, just for an instant right there. And then we go right back into our previous sound. But this interlude is a bit of an oddball. I like it for its oddballiness, for its unusualness. But yeah, there's not a whole lot going on around it. I mean, I'd say that, uh, uh, just speaking from an instrument perspective, the outro, when we get the piano in the outro, it's also a little bit of an oddball, but I think it gives the song a little bit of character. That said, we don't get much other things that stand out instrumentally besides the interlude and that piano in the outro. Um, lyrically, you know, I like the content here. The delivery is always great, but I don't feel like because the music is just kind of, is is more there than it's been as far as not really breaking out. I'm not as engaged with this track as maybe, say, others. Well, it's not nearly as cheeky as other pieces, which added uh, a veneer of happiness, yeah. which was something you can easily latch onto just as you're listening. Yeah. It also doesn't really go to the heights or the depths that we were getting earlier with the lyrics where a single turn of phrase would be just like, oh, that's a great little moment. Yeah. Plus the vocal style wasn't emoting something that was dramatically hitting me so it is one of the weaker tracks on the album i won't mm -hmm. say weakest but it is one of the weaker tracks especially after i had so much fun in friend zone with all the just all the attitude that was there i feel like it's so much was missing here yeah, that, that track definitely felt like a musical height, which I guess meh, maybe is an unfortunate uh, position for this track to be in. But, well, something had to arrive at track 15. So let's see what track 16 has in store as we pull out of it. Where I'm going. Um, two minutes and ten seconds. Thought I'd throw that out there, so it's still kind of a shorty. Full-blown Jaco Pistorius bass again. I know I'm repeating that, but actually we've been missing it for kind of a long time. And to hear it come back in a very, very strong way uh, and sound both melodic and like a bass line at the same exact time. Just the bass sounds like a bass, as it should, and also sounds like the melody. So that could be two tracks, maybe not. And as I said before, could be the same bassist doing it in the same track as he's very talented, we know. I would actually say a different name in this case, only because of like a heavy vibe I got from the very beginning. Flea. Mm. Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, like, they're, they're right up front, if I, I thought they were going to start going... Uh, how long? How long? I mean, there was a raw slide. There was a rawness <laughs> to this track that gave it an indie rock feel. I don't know that I got Chili Pepper specifically, but I kind of felt it leaning. This is the most the album to this point leaned towards rock and roll, I'd say, or indie rock. Um, I will say also the lyrics and the singing here does take a ser more serious tone. We kind of we're heading in that direction at least. It may not be a hundred percent serious, but we're definitely heading in that direction for this track. But I did feel a little bit of a childlike nature to the the lyrics themselves, so the vocalizing itself, because yeah. it's just because of how simple it is. Here it comes, in and out and around, feeling bare, almost there. Here it comes. This is the best part. This is the best part, getting weak. But I'm doing fine. How are you? How are you? Everything and nothing twirling around in my head all at once, all at once. Yeah. Like, that is... That's... Either Chucky, a, a <laughs> maniacal little doll about to stab you in the face, or the most innocent nursery rhyme you, a child will come up with just off the cuff. Like it can be taken either ways, and I'm actually going to take it in, in like in a, in a, a childlike anticipation because mm. of the beat, 
the beat is really heavy. It's it's like they're hitting a uh, a bass drum. Like it's it's one of those big kettle drums, just boom, boom, well, boom. But boom. there's a lot going on in between, so it's actually get you still get a racing sensation. It's a very very fast paced track, uh, and as a result, uh, you, the funny thing is that's really more your focus. The vocals are actually pretty reserved here. It's actually almost it's not even as much like singing really to me. It was it's more, more just, spoken here. Yeah, yeah. and I. I I would have to say, though, for all of that, I think for how short this track was as well, it had a lot of direction. I, I feel like we ran five miles around around town just to ask that single question at the end, where am I going? Can can you take me with you? Yeah. I, I, that's, there was a weight to this track that I really felt when we got towards the end. I'm becoming impressed by how much uh, punch and how much story narrative he does manage to squeeze into such a short time. And yeah. I really want to go where it is. This is like a, a Christmas Eve situation for me. Like, I, I'm I'm anticipating where we're going on this yeah. journey. So, drink that. Yeah, so drink that <laughs> is track 17, which is where we're going. And this features Taylor Graves and Wiz Khalifa. Um, I, like, I like the... <coughs> Uh, yeah, that's right at the beginning. I like that. The cough. So this is an ooh girl song, which we've gotten we've gotten hints of before, but this is this is really at least instrumentally that kind of R and B sway. You know, it's supposed to feel really smooth and kind of romantic. Um, but that said, what's also really interesting is that the rapping here on this track that Wiz Khalifa does really gives a, a polarizing context to the track, but in a really good way. It's a really interesting mix of two feelings. The chorus. Then she said, drink that, drink that, drink that, drink that. She told me, drink that, drink that, drink that. Then she said, with Wiz, the night is almost over, but we still want to party. Ain't no one here sober. The weed I'm rolling's gnarly. And I'm overpronouncing those R's on purpose because it's very eloquently done it is grammatically and phonetically correct it doesn't sound like someone drunk and party this isn't a baller this is a baller in the simplest of terms this is a gentleman and it does feel like almost every single phrase he uses it gets used in jest you know right and turn up on our cups because we gonna do that (laughs) someone get another bottle of gin we just ran through that made a million out of nothing thought you knew that hating on my crew swag that's too bad walk up in the party they like who's that (laughs) it's very shallow purposefully shallow yeah of course and it's i i i mean again you have to i guess just you have to be attuned to that caliber of comedy i i guess this was a a little bit weaker on the comedy side of things for me, but mm, I still appreciated the rap. I mean, yeah, for me, uh, I'm a big fan of Wiz Khalifa's work and his flow. What it, what was really great is he would have a stuttered flow for the majority of a verse, and then the last uh, four to six lines, he would speed up and kind of roll them out. Oh, when like he they're hits, falling down the stairs. When he hits them, like spit speed goes up a knot. No breathing whatsoever. Yeah. No intake of breath. He it's, just. Boom. And like then, he drops a bomb. But it's like a 15-second bomb on you. And it's yeah. really amazing how he, how he does that. But see, the rest of the track, the music is, is actually kind of thin. You yes. know, yeah, that's I the problem here. Just the sort of the slow one. Two. Uh, 
and four, one, two. I just don't really, it doesn't really do very much for me. I don't really have the shining features, which uh, honestly, I think have been most of this album. Right. If you don't have the long form and you don't have the overarching story, then we we have to reduce ourselves to these vignettes and or Nickelodeons, and uh, then just you gotta make it flashy. Make yeah, it flashy. So I, this, this was a little lax on that. But. I mean, I would I would argue that the intent here is for you to focus on the narrative, if you yeah. will. Yeah, and you do lyrics. have a lot of, this is definitely not the Nickelodeon or vignette, you do have a much longer story here you have two very long verses from uh from Wiz Khalifa so hmm. I, I think it's it's substantial enough, but at this stage in the game, my 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 head was not there. My head wasn't thinking in terms of narrative. I guess I was really wanting this stuff early on the album to develop later in the album. Let's go to track 18, Inferno. This is my favorite. Just throwing that out there. I have to right up front say that. Um, it's I the will big say, track. The yeah. big track in terms of scope. I will say that this is a track that is reminiscent to me sound-wise to six, track 16 as far as it does lean more towards a Chili Peppers or kind of indie rock vibe again. But we're getting heavier lyrical delivery here that's being delivered in a very different way as well. There's this kind of almost staring into the void, zone-out delivery to the lyrics well, this time. Well, it, it kind of works into the fire, black skies filled with smoke. Darker horizons ahead, out of the pan and into the fire, the descent into madness. And right there, right after madness, bright as day, dark as night, the inferno. What happens right there musically blew my freaking mind. Yeah, so this track is probably one of the more experimental electronic tracks on the record after that kind of indie rock beginning. Um, and it does some really interesting mixing and layering here that I don't really think we've heard up until this point on the record. It's essentially a dark cinematic excursion. Yeah. I mean, strings, which we really haven't had on this album, far from the bass, which certainly is strings, but no, you know what I mean. It's the full string section, maybe it's synth, we don't know, but it's all falling downward. It's all descending. I know we get a lot of that of that sensation, maybe in a lot of music in general, but this is almost back to the Doppler effect that I described earlier, but in in such a vaster scope. It's not just falling down, it's falling out of tune, falling out of phase with each other, because there's so many different elements that are all overlapping, and the sensation is that it never stops falling, all, really all the way up until a minute and 51 seconds, where we finally add some electronic sound effects, just a little bit, that take us up out from these depths that had lasted for so many seconds on end, just going down and down and down, then we actually get a slight little slide upward. Right? This is the first time we start to pull ourselves back out. Maybe by 2 minutes and 20 seconds, we're finally out of the woods, but now we're in the thicket. Because now it's just the, the sharpness of, two, I think, two different bass lines. Uh, both the, the bass lines and then also drum and hi-hat. Not resolving the track by any stretch, which is why I call it the thicket, but it, because of the sharpness, you know, you picture... Picture the, that scene in Brave Little Toaster, right? When they're going through, like, and, and the blanket gets caught on the on the little, uh, on the, the, the thicket in the background, and then they have to go back. It's, it's creepy. It's a, it's a creepy scene. There's a lot of creepiness mm. in that film for a film called Brave Little Toaster. No, go to All Dogs Go to Heaven, and the scene in hell in a children's movie that scared the crap out of me growing up. I don't know. Up. I always go to, in the Fievel movie, when the giant, like, mecha mouse Oh, is no, no, coming. that's the one. Yeah. That's well, the, the one the, that totally First of all, I didn't me. even describe the, the crown jewel of Brave Little Toaster, because if it's anything, it's going to be the giant chomper that destroys all the cars as they're singing existentially, worthless. We're worthless. Well, this track kind of does it, or at least it's a, a, a very similar kind of just let's screw with your young, impressionable mind when 
the drum just does a speed increase that totally just completely screws up the bass and then coincidentally backtracks on itself, but the bass can't do it. The bass can't go back anymore. Nothing else can go back anymore. It has to keep that, that extra rhythm. Mm-hmm. It has to keep that extra speed. It's got to be going double time. Even though our heartbeats calm down a little bit, I love this moment that everything just gets, like, just the, the, the shit knocked out of it. Just gets beat up. It is one of the best sort of jam outs, like, period. And it's paired with just just creepy, creepy lines. Welcome to the madness. Madness. Leave your mind at the door. Check out. Madness. Fading out. That one word. Fading out. Madness. This, this is similar. See, I, I... Mother effort. That's just awesome. See, it's funny because I was visually brought, just because I used the term thicket as being something. I was visually briefly brought to the only thicket I have reference in, in, in film, and that was Spray the Toaster, uh, the earlier scene. But then the end of the scene when they actually are singing... Uh, we're worthless. Of course, it's a it's a really snappy song. You know, yeah. I, I that got stuck in my head for for years. Always is kind of generally in my head at all times. And yet, of course, it's it's deeply depressing. And it it can be very awkward to watch these cars slowly go to their death and they have their final little final little solo and sing about their their life as a car. And that's kind of the way this is. We 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 groove along almost blissful ignorance along yeah. to this part of the right up to the end of the track it's 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 very awkward as they say welcome to the madness leave your mind at the door check out right and then the next track track 19 is called i am crazy so if you're giving into the madness well here we are and it's, this is only what 30 something seconds it's a very short piece and it really just poses one singular question bittersweet memories cloud my faded mind and if i was so lucky i could press rewind but could it be i'm crazy because I've been wrong before, let a nigga know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like that it's sort of, he's have, this is, this is an existential crisis. There is so much looking up to someone, yeah. you know, or whoever it is. Maybe it's just, it's just time itself and the, the, the joke that is your life. But there's a lot of, uh, a lot of sitting and musing. And but, for, it's, and, but it's a he, funk question. It's not yeah. just a question. It's a funk question. Well, because I, I would also say in this brief clip, this brief track, we get musically a lot of stuff we've already gotten before, you know, in a good way. Like, it's just a return to here's some funky stuff to go along with this other existential question as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to give every track its due, but at the same time, of course, this really is over in heartbeat. Uh, it's just this sort of oompa feel and that sort of slow to fast melody. I'm going to describe that because, uh, in that way specifically, because, you know, it was there in the beginning of the album. It was a, a style that I feel like he's almost trademarked on this album. A kind of melodic uh, meandering that at times can just feel like it's it's slow and, and grooving, like there's almost not going to be any substance to it. And then he goes through these quick little bursts, just in, in the middle of a melody, in the middle of a phrase. And that's what's, I think, been a, a binding factor on this album that is there even down to the shortest of tracks. And I, I, I love it. It makes me, again, feel at times, even if the rhythm is doing everything safe, like the melody could go on forever. Let's go to track 20. 3 a.m. Can't get any... Nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. Now we're at 3. <laughs> so this track, 
um, has a floaty ethereal theme that we that has been speckled throughout the album, but I don't think we've really kind of sat in in anything that has like a humming synth sound to it. Because what's really great about the instrumentation here is besides the synth work that's just in the foreground, there's kind of a uh, almost droning synth hum that's low behind everything, which yeah. I really like. It's like a funk lullaby. <laughs> At least I feel it. like the vocals are trying to say lullaby while he they're still keeping the idea of funk alive and well. It's the bass tone that I love, more on the beautiful side of things. Well, yeah, the it, well, because the bass is much crisper here. It's again, we're we're either right near that um, amplifier or the, it's really closely mic'd, yeah. and it it enhances this kind of spacious feel, which we haven't had a lot of space on this. Uh, record, I'd say. Um, I move pretty quickly. I would disagree with that a little bit. Uh, but there are, man, maybe you maybe get the sensation that it's well, yeah, like that because I, I, I of how quickly tracks turn over from I one to the next. I think that's more what it is. Not that there isn't space, but that because of the turnover, it feels less spacious. Well, Even though this is only a minute 15 seconds. Right. Minute 15 seconds, but I think we should read the lyrics here because if we get into the final stretch, I think the lyrics are going to matter more and more in terms of tying anything together. Three o'clock, just can't close my eyes. Something's wrong with me. No, I can't deal. I can't go to sleep. There's something in my heart. The streets keep calling me. And essentially, we just repeat the same thing. Um, there's a lot there's, of lamenting there's no, here. There's no... I, I, he's apparently has... We're done with the happy. Yeah. We're very much done with the happy-go-lucky well, I think veneer. Is, the veneer you, is gone. If we're putting painting this over the feeling of being drunk, this is the moment where you're starting to sober up and you have a drunken realization that everything is not okay. Or no, actually, I think this is a little bit different. I think this is when you're hitting a cusp of drunkness that is dangerous. Mm. That might okay. be it. Because be it. this is where it's a little bit slurry. That's where the lullaby voice comes in. A little bit slurry, a little bit slow. Like, like particularly slow. Like, things are happening with elongated seconds. Well, so maybe that's why the vo voice is going this way. People get drunk for different reasons. Clearly, this uh, he's not getting drunk for the right reason, right. we would think. In which case, if you know, there's always there that uh, that window of opportunity where maybe something positive can actually uh, be turned can actually turn it around because, yeah. well, alcohol, like any barbiturate, will amplify situations. So right. if something positive happened there, then maybe it could be, eh, maybe it would be a nice little getaway experience that we could just forget and move on. But if something doesn't go well, or if it doesn't go out go go the way you intended, then of course it will be the bad drunk night, and it will be the night that you're kind of going to want to forget for a while, even if nothing happens. That's just just as sad. Well, guess what? We're not going to get a happy-go-lucky night. In the next track, Drunk. Track 21. Drowning away all of the pain till I'm totally numb. Sometimes you want to feel alive, but not on someone else's time. That's how we open it up. That's the, that's, that's the choice of lyrics when we open it up. I don't think, I don't think your happy drunk time is going to be showing up here, Steve. Happy, well, happy drunk time. <laughs> well, also, and, and see what's really great about the tail end of this record is that musically it goes back to doing really interesting things. Like here, the instrumentation almost sounds drunk. The instruments slur and blur and kind of have offbeat notes or they kind of warble a bit. The funny thing is not even really, at the very beginning of this track, there's not even a lot of instrumentation, period. Yeah. period. It's just the wonky synth, and that's all. We build up a little, but it is definitely as, as offset as, as you've just made out. But I don't feel like this was something particularly new or flashy for this album. Like, towards the tailor end here, 
I feel like a lot of the previous themes and the things that we lauded in the very beginning of the album are just showing up heavily. I'm not getting wholly new ideas. I'm getting snippets that were abbreviations or additions or maybe subtractions of previous ideas. I'm not getting... I'm not, I'm not getting wowed anymore. Honestly, I I definitely do, well, point, I definitely do think the idea that he's drunk and things are not are not right has been a little bit hammered into the ground. This of course is the title track. It's sort of everything is wrapped up in it. I think but the the narrative of the album, the theme of the album carries me through here. Well, I'd agree it's stuff we've heard before on the album. I like the stuff we heard before. And to me, I don't think this is a downturn. I think this is a playing out of where this was supposed to progress. But after th- 3 a.m. and drunk, I'm getting really afraid that Inferno is where we really peaked on this album. And track 22, The Turndown, I really see that becoming a, a realization. I disagree completely and wholeheartedly. This is the bleakest the album gets. And I think even though Pharrell Williams, who's featured on this track, The Turndown, brings his brighter singing voice, it's not bright content and i think that again the narrative is what's carrying me through here because it gets so dark it's just because it's specific yeah that's that's really why this track i don't know if i think maybe musically i'm with john musically i think this this actually could have stood to be a little more like the track 18 inferno but of course i i do think if the whole album is about escapism uh and avoidance then you do eventually need to get back to what those specific things are. First, he starts off as vague as ever. As I sit, as I sit, and I stare into the clouds and watch the world turn. Is this where we belong, or is it a step to fill? Interesting. Makes me wonder, makes me think. Everything we do is weak. Turn down. Oh, because I look at the mess we've made. Who's going to clean it up? Oh my god, where's Captain Planet? Perception. What you see, compared to reality, so far away. You are so drunk. You miss it all. Just make sure you have the right Jordans on, or be left to rot and die face down in the gutter. Uh, that, that's depressing as all hell, but let's just get to Pharrell's segment here, because this is where it gets really specific. This is gonna sound like I was just hitting the hash. They make us think it's a race war, when the war is in class. Teachers come through the speakers, images through the glass, subliminal messages influencing the whole clash. Black, white, gay, straight, human beings all pee and want some ass. If you're scared of different, then you should not take the same path. If all lives matter, when we mention black, why do you gasp? Behind our blue skies is the sun, who's surrounded by black. I love the camo, but why have more ammo than mash? Instead of blowing yourself up, take a love pill and laugh. Well, a little oversimplification at the end there, but on the whole, yeah... Yeah. yeah, can't really uh, disagree. Yeah, no, and I think I think for me it's actually refreshing to hear Pharrell do that because this goes back to his NERD days, you know, where he was a lot more a little more politically. Yeah, yeah. whereas his solo stuff, while I really enjoy it, and we talked about his record, and I enjoyed that record, is kind of a lot more fun-loving and less serious. And here he's delivering some serious information that I think is poignant for the record. 
and the bleakness is refreshing because we did get so light or bizarre or weird or twisted, and now it's matter of fact. And it's also well because it's specific. It, it's it's refreshing that he also has a a. It's it's not just some kind of tailor made. You know, this is what everyone is thinking at the same time. For instance, when he says they make us think it's a race war when the war is in class, not everyone will agree with that. Yeah. Not everyone will agree with that. I I I think maybe I would agree with that, but at the same time, this is not. This is why we do this show is because it's a matter of an artist presenting a certain point of view and it's one of the reasons why just two weeks ago when we did snooze we had a fairly long end of album rant and it's not worth having that rant today because I kind of went through it then if you're going to talk about a specific issue that is presented by an artist then it's enough to present a certain point of view and yet address all sides at the same time you know there's just a a, concerning this particular track there is just a genuine uh, exultation in terms of in terms of what he would like to see out of the world. Yeah. And it's, it's it's extremely, you know, genuine, I know is the word that gets overused here, but I, at, at the end of all this, at track 22, which is not something that we get to say very often, I think the only thing that can be said, really, if it, clearly something was avoided. All of these things were yeah. avoided, and they they weigh down. They weigh you down as a, as a human being, and they could make anybody turn to anything. It could make you go get drunk. It could make you want to go off and have and have a, a crazy space adventure, like uh, in Jaleel's track, but I, this is probably what you would ideally want in the end, which wouldn't, if everything was solved here, if everything was all as it should be, then you wouldn't have to escape. This would be your escapism. It would be a form of utopia, which sadly may not happen in our lives. That said, I love the sentiment. It's one of the most eloquently put sentiments about this, about the fact that I think at the core of it, it could be summated as we're defeating ourselves because we're looking more at our divisions than at our similarities, which has yeah. been a, 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 the carry-on call for so many different societies, and people keep forgetting that it's about their similarities, not our differences. Right. Thank God for this message. Thank God for Pharrell, because the music doesn't do much. And the only major change I'm really seeing is that the bass feels a little bit wetter. Like, it feels a little bit more submerged, watery, and that's it. I don't feel anything else musically. There were some harmonies, especially during Pharrell's part, especially considering that I believe he obviously would have had a hand in not just writing this, but probably in writing the music beneath it. And at that specific moment, I, I noticed that a lot of other things started happening in terms of harmony that I relate right back to Pharrell's wor- work. It's it's Pharrell's signature musical flair, and it's usually the right flair. Yeah, and I would say, again, it, it, though a repeated defense, I, I'm in this for the words. The music, of course, is always important, but was not the front and center here. If this were track one, I'd be tired of it. I really, yeah. no, I, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why I had the rant that I did two weeks ago, is because I think that sometimes if you just overstate the message of, we would like to live in a better world, then it can be a very big oversimplification. This is not an album about simply what we want. It's an album about weight. Yeah. The weight of the world and feeling like it's a bigger problem than you can handle. But my only argument against that, Matt, specifically would be that through track 1819, I wasn't saying lyrics or music or one to the detriment of the other. They were married for me pretty heavily with very little hiccuping. Very little just, okay... That wasn't quite as good. It was really just the long expositions when 
they're getting guest speakers, wrapping it out, and really putting a lot of content that I feel like the music takes a back burner, and that was the disappointment. Here's another case where the content is great in the lyrics, but with the music taking the back burner, I'm disappointed. Other parts of this album, the, they, they don't. One does not take a back burner with the other. And I guess all I'm saying is that it doesn't disappoint me because I w- found enough meat in the other stuff to enjoy myself. Anyway, let's move on to the final track. 23, what do you call the final track of an album about being drunk? Of course you call it DUI. I did notice something. I feel like DUI is heavily borrowing from the beginning of the album. It is. The synth and bass it's wrap It's not up. just borrowing. It's identical. Yeah. It, it is? It really is. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, it's the same it's as the long. beginning. It's been an hour. It's true. It has been an hour. It's been more for us, actually, when yeah, we consider yeah, this discussion. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the verse... Uh, that whole first thing, sometimes you're the alive, intro, sometimes yeah. you are dead inside, uh, with the time to read between the lines of life and death. Sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's the worst thing ever. Hopefully you work it off and get a DUI. But then it's after that that the mm-hmm. sky opens in this track. Yeah, you track. get the sprawling synth sounds. It's no longer that synth-based kind of wrap-up feel that's summating the, the album. It does breathe and open up. It's this crazy fluttering. And then, of course, you get several bursts. The second burst, you know, is sort of a high synth screeching above everything else. And then one more normal verse, bottom of the glass. At this point, you've made an ass, and your friends will let Love you know tomorrow. Uh, and then finally, one, well, I'm so tired... One more glass to go. Where this ends, we'll never know. And, of course, fittingly, that last chord of the piece is ominous as everything. Yeah, and it, it loops back into the beginning, both in tone, in sound, and then in... Maybe con- melody, yeah. even. Like, he I was your, like he was your narrator. Of- right, and I, and I like that. I mean, it really locks in the theme for this and the structure for the record, and I think that was really cool. It did a lot to turn around the music, because as much as I was complaining and I were getting a lot of other same stuff it was great to have the beginning and end actually be um a beginning and end of equal value that they had such stark similarities as we went on this just effed up journey which i love the effed up journey that we went it feels like it took forever to get here but we're here now and at the end of the day i really liked where we end of it all (laughs) I, I, i really really liked I love this album for its content, for its theme work, for the breaking down of the laughter over the course of these 23 tracks. That the the fake ha-has that we got in the beginning, we only saw them as fake afterwards. We only saw the layers of this character coming out after so much time with him after so many different tracks after you know he he was like peeling off a part of his skin a part of his soul every single time and showing us the next dark depth that he had which was just awesome we have hiccups i'm not gonna lie we got hiccups and i think i probably saw the most out of all of us um with kind of a weak third act uh as far as the music goes then again it was electronicified I'm going to use that. Any any objections? No. Okay. Electronicified, R&B, D. Motown funk combination. Funked. No, Motown? no, no. Motown? I'm saying it's electronicified Motown funk R&B, like those three things. Electronicified. 
okay. specifically defining those in respect of the electronification of it. Okay, so square brackets. Yes. <laughs> but it was great for that. I really enjoyed the, the, the palette he's using here because, first off, he's an incredible bassist. He knows how to write and how to play bass beautifully. Solid lyricist. Um, as much as I still will rag on that first Flying Lotus album that I didn't actually get to rag on on air. <laughs> you don't uh, get to complain. <laughs> the second one was a, 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 a huge upturn for me, and I will I will admit, as if Flying Lotus is as heavily involved as we really think he is, because I'm, I'm pretty sure he's listed almost completely as I mean, one, of, one the of the producers of the record, yeah. But like track by track, like producer on almost every single one's by name. Um, and in some places he actually gets featured, quote unquote, as like the keyboardist or a major writer or something like that. So props to him to really doing his influence and bringing it to Thundercat instead of vice versa, as we've heard previously. So we've got a lead artist that's doing something from like the depths of its soul, doing great work in what he's doing, and a backup artist slash producer that's really just helping him fulfill it with some hiccups, with some issues here and there, plus a menagerie of just great guest artists that are showing up. My big complaints is that the guest artists were doing too much content, which was hurting the flow of the music. They were doing too much. They were they were being too informative in the lyrics, and their the raps were good raps, but not good for the funk. I guess that is my major complaint. Okay, I'm, I'll let you have it for now. I have the the complaint issues. of their content was good, but it just was the great content. I guess is not a huge complaint, but it is it is enough of a complaint for me, and it wasn't everywhere. It wasn't every instance. So, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm having issues with, like, Snooze. Snooze, I think I heard a lot more innovation in some respects, and I'm going to compare it to Snooze because it's up there with Snooze. Uh, a lot more variation in some respects, a lot more experimentation in some respects, and I think that's what keeps Snooze ahead because while... The form was there that was all over the place with Snooze, and, and I was always enticed and always like laughing and giggling along. The story here was greater, but I don't think the music as a whole was greater, and that's what the big detractor is. 4.65. I don't think I've gotten really that specific in a very long time besides doing like a quarter of a point, but 4.65. It is above the fives, and it's approaching... Some pretty solid stuff. But it was just missing a little bit of the je ne sais quoi, as Matt said earlier, that I didn't see. That I think might might very easily put it into a much higher four range to a five. Well, I may never know whether... Well, I don't want to say never. I won't soon know whether until the quiet comes or, or you're dead or were up to this particular caliber. And I know this is not a Flying Lotus album, but at the same time, I know how integral Flying Lotus was to this album. Um, perhaps, of course, he didn't get the final say in the in the overall songwriting, and he was the consistent right-hand man, the aide to this getting done. In which case, maybe that is the composite combination that, 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 works, that works beautifully, uh, that works above all three. But the reason I, I hesitated is because, of course, again... 
episode 19. I'm not judging our, our I don't I don't trust our our interpretation of that album. 131 even still it's a long time ago. I think we were better then, but I think this is a good test. This is a very I, good test. I think it's also important to not diminish Thundercat's work because this is his album. It is his yeah. album, and the songwriting comes down to him. The ideas, I guess, come down to him in the end. And the bass, definitely, of course, him being a bassist, it's a much richer component of these albums than they were on the Fl- Flying Lotus work. I can say that for sure, despite how uh, how featured Thundercat was in those albums. It's really an extravaganza honestly 23 tracks is a lot last time we had an album that was this long was of course the vice quadrant by steam-powered giraffe and i was dying by yeah. the end <laughs> me too me dying too. yeah which is sad to say considering how much all three of us love yeah. that band and don't get me wrong there's a long gonna be a long episode and we're all very tired here but i was pretty riveted it helps Taste helps, as always. And there's you know, some funk. You know that there's a lot of funk in this yeah. and that I like my funk. Um, and that does keep it very, very interesting for me. And, uh, you know, I, I know when to also say, like, all right, it's funk, but it's, it's really not pushing it here and there. But I think a good, like, 80% of this album really does push the boundaries of funk music. And it's not, again, it's not all funk, but, like, pushes the boundaries of funk slash R&B slash the other, you know, things that were in that square bracket that John said, um, Motown, and also just really, really great electronica. A lot of it is just ideas that I don't really see coming from any other artist or in any other time. It's, 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 it's hyper-present, despite for the allusions to things from the 70s, allusions to things from the 80s. But it all gets redone, and that is what I so far have seen to be Flying Lotus's flair. And it's one of the th- things that, even though we uh, debated on songwriting, I really liked from the, those previous Flying Lotus albums. Now, if you get to songwriting, um, or rather composition, because you really, it, it's difficult to compare this to Snooze, and yet I'm tempted to do the same thing, John. Uh, because that's so recent, it's only two weeks ago, and it was a very, very high, highly rated album for me. Um, I deeply fell in love with it. This album, I confess I didn't get quite as many listens to as I did for Snooze. That was in about six days. This, uh, because of doubling up, I had to compress a little bit quicker. But also, this is almost triple the length of Snooze. It is also almost <laughs> twenty. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it was a 23-minute album. A little over double, actually. Okay. But it feels so much longer, especially when you consider this discussion, because, of course, we got to look at so many individual tracks, and you have to treat them as individual works. Or you don't have to. Now, that's the tricky thing here, because... If you were to look at it from a songwriting perspective, then no. I think that Snooze had a better conceptual idea of what a track should consist of. I hate using the word should, but in terms of the peaks and the valleys, it does accomplish a lot more for each one of those just seven tracks than any one of these did as a whole entity. But that's not how it should be visualized on this. Instead, it's kind of like what I said in the beginning. It's more like mood exposés, which are, in this case, bolstered by a rather rich story that gets told in snippets and bits and pieces. And of course, it's all just about feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders, a lot of very specific things here, all through kind of an analogy. And I think we were a bit too on the nose with, you know, being drunk in terms of just uh, there being an alcohol (laughs) overlier for this. It's, I think, feeling drunk on on the world a little bit, drunk on on the stuff that's getting you down. Mm. And the message at the end, I think, is is rather poignant. Um, 
indeed very poignant when you consider just past forgetting the Pharrell part, you know, just hopefully you can at least work it off and get a DUI. It's not very uplifting. No, it's like even the best outcome is okay. At this point, you've made an ass and your friends will let you know tomorrow. It's really just come what may. It's a giant come what may. Um, One more glass to know where this ends, we'll never know. I think that's how a lot of people feel about a lot of issues right now. Um, I'm just so tired. (laughs) That's a little line in here. And I've said that many a times. Yeah. Uh, You know, it can both be overstated and it can also be understated, but I I, I won't ever understate it for the sake of the artist. I think this is a a fantastic artistic representation of precisely what he feels, and he made me feel it. He made me feel it really, really badly for a good portion of this. And that's where actually where it goes back to being very similar to Snooze, because, you know, there was that weighted final track, and yet the entire album is a romp. Just a romp. And most of this, most of it, again, 80% of it, is a romp for the funk reason and all of the intricate composition therein. I I enjoyed this record a lot. Really a lot. And I don't think the length of these tracks hurts it in any way, shape, or form. I think John's right in thinking that the expansion, uh, the... The compositional expansion of particular areas of innovation may be one of the only areas where this album lacks. Uh, everything else in terms of how it ties together and the overall experience, I think, is is very, 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 very high. And he never lets anything drag on long enough for you to get over it. I actually recall making the same argument uh, on Snooze, but that was on the album scale, the album being short, these having short tracks. It's almost very similar. <sighs> That, yeah, that puts me in the upper echelon. I am above a 4.5. I think just for the reason that this album kind of lacked a moment-by-moment punch within given tracks, uh, and their vignette style may be the only thing that kind of pushes me down from, like, where I was at for Snooze, which is insanely high. I'll put this at my kind of general, I love the album, will definitely go back to it uh, state, which is like a 4.75. It sits in a few albums I've given that. It's still not a very high number. All right. Uh, the problem with going third on albums like this where we have a lot of overlap in how we feel is I have a lot less to say. Well, I suppose that's a good thing because it's not like we don't get long-winded, as it were. Um, I agree with Steve and disagree with a lot of what John said. I understand where John's coming from, but for me, this is way beyond Snooze. I, I liked Snooze, but as you recall, I rated it lower than you guys. You were the dissenter of the group. I was. Um, mostly because I just felt like I didn't connect with it. I didn't really get it, to oversimplify it. Whereas here, I agree with Steve wholeheartedly. The emotional ride of this record I am completely wrapped up in, and I think that is a good way of putting it, that you're not just drunk on alcohol here. It's being drunk on the insanity around you. And I feel that tirelessly in the last you know, four months at least of this year, like just with my new job and other things, like I can totally relate to that. But musically, this is doing incredible things that I was shocked really to hear. Honestly, when when you told me that, that Devin had recommended this, and I like Devin, I like his taste in music, I love the music he makes, I was cautiously optimistic. Because I know, his, I know his music and I know his taste in music, but I had no idea what to expect from Thundercat because I know nothing of his catalog at all. That said, I'm definitely diving back into his previous two records. Abso-frickin-lutely. The, the theme is tight here. The emotion is tight. The, the, the singing is 
fan-damn-tastic, which I don't think either of you talked about enough. The falsettos here are almost constant, relentless, and gorgeous. I'm going to interject to say you're right. I did not talk about that enough. I think it should have been a bigger component of this of this episode. It's the singers and the bass and the bassist. Yeah. It's everything him, which and, probably both him. <laughs> yeah. And for me, like, that was huge. And, you know, then having this cavalcade of guest stars was great because it was treated in a way that I think... Uh, you know, he knows the joke. He knows what it's like to bring in, in people who are going to take center stage from you on certain tracks. And he utilized them brilliantly. Think about how Pharrell, Wiz Khalifa, and, and Kendrick Lamar were all used in their tracks. And then think about, like, Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins and how they're used in their track. It's all brilliant placement and focus for those guest singers, which I say a lot of guest singers on other albums is very gimmicky. Here, it's absolutely meticulously placed and precise, and I think that's really worth lauding as well, because it doesn't happen enough. Um, you know, I will agree with some of the hiccups, though. I will say that the music towards the end of the record does leave me wanting a little bit, but I, it doesn't hurt my rating as much, because I think the emotional connection, the theme, and the content lifts it above what the music might bring down. Um, you know, I could go at length about similar things that John and, and and Steve did but the reality is I'm fairly in sync with with Steve's feelings and that said it's not like John hated the record either <laughs> it's it's not even close no it's like okay you're a world stage athlete but you're only getting five out of six golds yeah like come on you're um, on the screen when you're watching the scrimmers the swimmers but you know you just didn't get the gold in the end right, that's all exactly. <laughs> um you know i i think this is a fantastic record it's definitely my fit i can hands down say it's my favorite of the year so far easy it's in the running for for best of the year um you know we've still got a long way to go we're only four months in but uh just barely four months in but um it was phenomenal i can't wait to hear it more uh this is a 4.9 for me 4.9 all right, pretty strong. Um, just in terms of the comparison to Snooze, I, I do think that as we get into that upper, upper, upper echelon, taste just becomes a bigger... It becomes actually not even just taste. It becomes about what you maybe respect slightly more in songwriting. Mm -hmm. I think this did a phenomenal job with a... Uh, with a caliber of songwriting based on the little short, you know, vignette mm. style that I think we've been a little bit unkind to. I just needed to see it done in a bigger way. Yeah. This is the tightest form that I've seen in that structure, but I still just tend to gravitate toward the moment-by-moment -moment stuff, which uh, Snooze had in abundance, and instilled a little bit too in recent history. I think, uh, yeah, the year in review is going to have to let that sit as to whether maybe even that comes down a little bit or this goes up a little bit. I don't know. Maybe my uh, appreciations will change. And speaking of changes in appreciation, that's going to bring us to a rather unorthodox topic. It's more of a response and an addendum to last week's episode, which uh, is going to be a little weird because I'm going to be reading a block of text here, kind of speaking on behalf of Crash Chords. It's some thoughts that I've had in my head the last few days. He has our approval to speak this way. There we go. All right, so this week... We received both some very nice words and some very harsh words from two separate artists. And that's a, this is a pretty surreal experience to have had those highs and those lows so closely back to back. And after almost five years of doing this now, I want it clear, we're not numb to this kind of thing. When artists come forward to express their thanks for the analysis, positive or even middle road, especially middle road, it means the world to us every single time. Same goes for listeners who just reach out to say they're glad to see longer discussions on music taking place. And so first off, to Logan Voss, 
and everybody out in Chicago from Snooze, the label, friends of the band, thank you immensely for your support. I, I won't read the feedback here because that's not really the main focus of this topic, but you have only the press and acknowledgements page to look to. The episode was uh, episode 236. It's an episode that I'm strangely as proud of as Snooze must be of their debut. So that's the good news. And now for the piece of bad news. Well, I can only count three times when listeners had some harsher words for us in this series, and considering two of them were in YouTube caliber trolling language, and another was a respectful disagreement that we actually ended up finding common ground on, I didn't lose a lot of sleep over them. But now for something that's never happened. We have never been contacted by an artist who, well, for starters, obviously disagreed with our take, but more importantly, was powerfully hurt by not just our words, but the concept as a whole. Well, I have a major apology headed his way, but before I read what he has to say and what I have to say, let me just start off really humble and reiterate some things about the show. Although the Crash Gords podcast has been a long uphill battle, it takes days of preparation from week to week, and we don't get jack squat from it except less time in our day. We are still an inherently flawed trio. And that's not some attempt to hide under a rock and clear us of all moral responsibility, nor is it an act of self-hatred. We love what we do. It's just an admission of the series as being exactly what it appears to be. A real-time, nearly five-year-long venture that we've grown increasingly serious about, but also where our morals change, where our core tenants get morphed and transmuted, where we alter and update our artistic sensibilities. That happens weekly. Our 2012 selves are unrecognizable. So it's an incomplete product. We didn't even know what the show was going to be when it started off. It was just a thing to do every week. Our earliest episodes are damn near unlistenable. But eventually, with a bit of work, a bit of persistence, we started visualizing the show differently. And with greater frequency, we began to anchor ourselves back to some core tenets, things we believed in going forward. Among them, we really wanted to see deeper discussions on art, reaching far beyond where we were at the time and also where we are today. We were also really tired of tagline reviews, and they felt that they oversimplified matters. They cheapened artists, that they were patently dismissive, and that they weren't acts of critical thinking, they were just acts of marketing. And even if marketing is the intent, just the idea was so unfulfilling. Critics were going through albums like Rolodexes. There was no intensive listening going on. They were getting paid to do relatively no work and at no courtesy to public intellect. So what's our answer to all this? We're going to not get paid and do a lot of work. That'll show them. And so gradually, we hit a stride, and at this point, almost every episode, whatever you may think of it, is the result of a lot of listening, a lot of writing, a lot of analysis and editing, not because we're determined to arrive at the correct conclusion about an album. There's no such thing. But because we believed that art deserves moment-by-moment -moment critical thinking. That's how revelations are drawn. That's how people change the way they think about the world. That's not to say you should sit in your living room and talk about what Crash Chords is talking about. No, just talk about art on your own terms. Exchange opinions, post the comment board, we're not going to delete it, make another podcast even, and link that episode in our comment board. Even if you rebuke everything we say, that would be the most rewarding thing if we just got you talking about art. Awesome. And then of course the underlying analogy, as it quickly became apparent, is that it would be nice if people did this for all issues, as a gateway and engaged in ceaseless dialogue, because conclusions of all kinds, unless it's a matter of hard science, are really lazy. And while that may sound very cynical, the greater crime to me is complacency. Belief systems, morals, we settle into these things because life is short and we're content, not because we've achieved enlightenment or crested art itself. That's why we have year in reviews, updates, and apologies as we go. Tall order? Yeah, it, it's a project. 
And for the most part, I'm fairly proud of what we've done. Not every episode, not our early episodes, but we've had a lot of successes along the lines I just mentioned, proving that two-plus hours can mostly, mostly accomplish way more than a tagline ever could. Could change minds, can change our own minds. Maybe just owing to the fact that 80% of our episodes include either albums we love or those that do something different enough to yield great discussion. De facto successes. It's been a pretty positive experience. Well, now I want to talk about a failure. Our failure. Because what if that two-hour accomplishment results in nothing but complete and utter discouragement? Not born from some kind of constructive criticism, as you'd hope a professor might present it to you, but from a stranger. Three strangers, unsolicited, not liking it, saying why, and draining the lake with reasons for two hours. What is the purpose of an episode like that? You know, we, we yap a lot about respectful dialogue, and we try to present it respectfully. But sometimes the end result is the same as if you had just let out a string of curse words. Worse even, because now there's no hiding. You know, profanity invalidates argument. Hater's gonna hate. It's none of that with us. It's just a big pile of controlled, rehearsed, premeditated, and nauseating discouragement. And although we never intended it to come across that way, I think that's precisely what we're guilty of at times. We know we are in this case, and for that reason, I'm especially not satisfied with where we landed at the end of last week's episode. Episode 237, Atlas by FM84. In the beginning, I tried approaching this album as we do most albums. I made a few cracks about the album's 80s focus, more just to warm up and be silly rather than it reflecting any of my true feelings. And the episode was not devoid of nice things to say about the album and the artists who worked on it. But I fully recognize that over the course of that episode, we got increasingly swept up in the things we didn't like, and we gravitated toward them as it drew closer to the monologue. Beyond that, it's just, it's the in-between. It's the time spent, the tone in our voices, and finally there are some comments that I made that I just flat out regret. If one could believe it, if one cares, the album was probably headed to the year in review as an upward rating change within days of recording. Still is, although that's months away, and let's face it, I don't think a rating change would have made much difference to Carl Bennett, the composer, after hearing the episode. And sure enough, he did hear it. And so here we are, for the first time in the history of the podcast, getting contacted not by a respectful listener, nor an artist sending us thanks and appreciation, but as you'd expect, four deeply hurt tweets from the artist himself, who saw no value in that episode, and why should he? Carl Bennett wrote on Twitter, I poured my heart and soul into Atlas, and I'm insanely proud of it and the thousands of fans that listen to it every day. It's okay not to like it. That's cool. What's not so cool is making a two-hour podcast that repeatedly sticks the knife in and labors the point. It feels excessive, unnecessarily cynical, and destructive. I'm not sure why any decent person would try to undermine an artist like this. It's hard not to take this personally. I hope you get a special, warm, fuzzy feeling knowing how shitty you can make someone feel. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I feel terrible. His comments made me feel terrible. Our episode made him feel terrible. It's hard not to come to the conclusion that the whole idea for the episode was just terrible. Bearing in mind everything I said at the outset, which is why I said it, about goals of the series, who will really listen to that episode, that episode in particular, and feel like they got a good podcast experience? Probably no one. The theory is always that the blend of points made over a two-hour span will offer something different for everyone. But like I said, I re-listened to that episode, and it was a slanted experience, no doubt about it. We harped on the cons, we glossed over perks. For one thing, I felt like the production on the album was spectacular, but I didn't stress that enough. But anyway, this apology, and it is an apology, is not about directly amending the review. That, at least on my part, will wait until the year in review, episode 275 this December. But no, this apology is more about our choice to do an album 
that as the day was upon us, it was clear what the episode was going to consist of. Because over the week, we listen. We listen separately. We don't like to give away our thoughts to each other quite yet, not before showing up to record. That's part of the fun of it, so we don't influence each other. But in this case, we all arrived with separate grievances that turned out to be quite similar. Spoilers, we've kind of blended over the years, and I'm probably mostly to blame for the bulk of that cynicism. But then again, on the other hand, there's been lots of cases where Matt and John have brought me over to their side on many things, so it, it's, it's pretty tricky. Point is, I don't want to be in this particular position ever again, where I'm making an artist feel bad just for the sake of it. Now, there's a few things that could be said, I guess, in response to this response. As far as internet content goes, sure, you could argue free speech and entertainment value. Well, we already know that the vast majority of our listeners come from fans of a given artist that they see in the title. Enter the moment of truth. If they like what they hear, based on us liking what we hear, they might come back again for another episode. Will we lose the same listener the next time they hear an episode they're excited for, but our review was kind of bleh? I'm sure it's happened. So not only have we undermined the artist, emotionally speaking, we've undermined ourselves. Who's gaining anything after an episode like that? Not us, not the artist, not the listener. We spent a week working toward a goal that resulted in making an artist feel really shitty. And besides, entertainment doesn't really hold up in the face of someone else's misery, in my view. So, yeah, this is partially inspired by the whole free speech you sensibly rant that I made at the end of Snooze. I championed it so hard then, and then I broke it in a week's time. That's not going to stand for me on any level. Now, another thing that could be said is, as far as defenders of critical analysis go, well... Of course I value criticism and wish it didn't have to be so black and white. This goes back to the same thing that I've desperately been trying to propagate. That yeah, sure, we review albums, but it's really so much more about the analysis. And so now that we've gone there, and we've been there for a while, we're in full analysis mode, I'm suddenly realizing that that's good in some ways and it's not so good in other ways. On one hand, if you can remove the very human gut reaction to a work of art, then it becomes kind of a clinical study. Something that I personally like to see in documentaries and treatises on even my favorite works. With every artistic choice, we see both the genius and the lapses. Kind of like an architectural masterpiece with a cracked foundation. You'd be remiss not to address both aspects when using it as a model. Sure, we all love Beethoven, but it is generally agreed on that he was a less than stellar melodicist. But he made up for it in other ways, let's find out where. That's the benefit of being cynical, <laughs> I mean clinical. But on the other hand, Beethoven's also dead. And when our discussion continuously doesn't reveal great things by whatever standards we're using that particular day with contemporary artists, then it's easy to critique and critique and critique and feel like you're being logical because in order to do the job, we shield ourselves from all regard for the very human, human being behind the thing. Someone whose own set of personal standards just didn't happen to be on our radar. Well, then we're just jerks. And damn it if that ain't a conundrum. Some days I don't notice. I gave this episode quite a few once-overs during the final edits, and it didn't feel so harsh at the time until I listened again after reading those tweets, and I went, yeah, yeah, ooh, that didn't feel good. Other days were only halfway through the recording or even the note-taking until that little flashing light goes on in the back of my head. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And yet we're doing a thing here, so I go against my better judgment and ignore it. Because for criticism, surely you have to stretch that golden rule a little bit, right? Don't you? If it looks like someone's taking missteps on an unsecured ladder, you criticize, don't you? You scold even? But art? Eh, really, as much as I love it, it just doesn't have the stakes. Fear the ladder, don't fear making music. For multiple reasons, I'm beginning to think that the episode and those similar to it were just callous lapses in judgment on our part, amplified by a tertiary piece of hypocrisy that stuck in my side even as I pressed the publish button. That being that not but a week ago, during the beginning of the snooze episode, I made a brief note in the intro about how we typically don't pick debut albums because of the impropriety of nitpicking to musicians at a time in their careers when they are in great need of encouragement. So really, again, I mentioned it in 236, I forgot it in 237, that was a dumb, dumb error. 
The Shining taught me that 237 was cursed, <laughs> but absurdly, I guess it just didn't click with me that uh, that was the debut. Maybe the success of Snooze had me subconsciously poised to abolish the rule. Once again, we're incredibly imperfect. Another piece of hypocrisy is the fact that I began to justify the fact that I was operating from an anti-retrowave standpoint itself, an anti-nostalgia bias. And that was a fallacy on my part. His work is drop-dead honest. This is an ode to the 80s and the media I love. Thus, success? 100%, five stars by that criteria. And what's worse is that I respect it a ton because of my shared love of 80s media. It's just that I turned off the switch because of my personal bent against the nostalgia craze. We talked about that in the topic, and I'm less regretful of that portion of the episode because it's, it's one thing when it's a multi-million dollar movie producer banking big time off of public nostalgia and inducing it at the expense of fresh scripts, new writers. But it's another thing when it's a self-released musician pursuing an aesthetic that he loves. Honestly, what's the harm? So yeah, we were far, far too dismissive of that. 21st century music isn't going to be about linear creative development. It's going to be about omni-creative development. All eras, all forms, all styles at once, and we at least should have been having a debate along those lines. So yeah, I am putting this apology out there to Kyle Bennett and all those who worked on the Atlas album. Our episode was in poor taste. I genuinely never want to make an artist feel that way again. This apology is for human decency's sake. It's also antithetical to the point of the show, but I'm not doing this for Crash Chords PR purposes or for the need to be liked by all listeners and artists. No, I, I have to engage in these self-analyses every time they come up in order to just justify and retool the project, just like we justify artistic choices as both creator and consumer. So, yeah, self-analysis is almost of neurotic importance to the series. It has to be, or I would never sleep. The fact is, there is a fragility in all artists, no matter how much of a front they put up. It's the same fragility that, it's high time I admit, plagues me as an aspiring musician, and perpetually delays my own debut album, no matter how much drivel I compose to a one-man audience, me. At this point, it's mostly for stress relief, so honestly, in effect, I'm a victim of my own cynicism, and that in itself was a dumb connection not to draw. Now. My final reason for doing this, and then I'll go on to format changes. It would be far too easy for us to ignore these tweets for reasons of textbook internet anonymity, which, although we've frequently derided it on the show, when you really think about it, isn't the whole show guilty of internet anonymity? Would we really say the things we've said on the show to artists' faces? No, we'd be liars to say otherwise, and no critic would, by the way, no matter what prestigious paper they write for. Critics, all critics, live and die by anonymity. It's just that articles, and most critics do write articles, are kind of read and forget these days. Suddenly the pitfalls of having a two-hour podcast with all the verbal color and clarity become all too painful, because you hear all of the guffaws and the impatience, even when we're at our most professional. So yeah, I'm just trying to address this with a dose of humility, which too many internet personalities avoid for the same reason they opine to begin with. Why apologize for anything when you can benefit from anonymity? Well, the truth is, I wouldn't be able to shed that special, warm, fuzzy feeling he nodded toward. And while this spiel isn't going to completely absolve me of that, it's a move in the right direction. So how are we going to remedy this? Well, I'm sure it won't be satisfactory to the artist, but this is our decision. Number one, the episode will stay up. It's done, it's been said, but there's now a link in the post to this episode so that hopefully future listeners can take our words with a heap of salt and gain some wisdom from this experience. And also, I'm going to allay his fears on one count. No artist is going to find themselves undermined by our like career-wise. We're not trying to influence album sales or anything. The worst that can happen from someone listening uh, to that episode is if someone goes, huh, interesting perspective. If they're already going to buy the album, then it's, it's far more likely they'll run to the defense of an artist they love in the comments. No one flocks to critics, they flock to artists. So, in essence, FM84 gets the kids. 
But let's entertain the idea, because of course it's a nice dream. If I'm sure we'd all like the site to grow in popularity. In that case, I'll bite. If we had a followership of any meaningful degree, we might gain clout. Clout that I actually fear having for those exact reasons. And at that point, if it was causing damage, we'd clearly have to change the format. Well, guess what? Today is that day. We're changing the format. Number two. From this day forward, whoever selects the album must be selecting it from the position of arguing in the album's favor. So that even if the other two dislike it, we have a debate. A real good old-fashioned Crash Chords debate. Not quibbling over the degree to which we agree, as is usually the case, but a true exhibition of what it means to differ on artistic terms. Like in the case of episode 192, Varmints by Anna Meredith. I brought it on completely smitten, and John was a naysayer for a few tracks. Nevertheless, Anna Meredith actually stumbled across that episode herself and was brimming with excitement to see her words a two-hour debate with moment-by-moment -moment pros and cons. She enjoyed the disagreements. That's a balanced episode. That's what I aspire to. So we will no longer select albums if we're not sold to begin with, even on grounds as thin as insatiable curiosity. 80% of the time it works out that way anyway, but sometimes we poke in the dark and look where that's got us. Of course that means you must know the album fully in advance of the week you select it. Previews are not going to do anymore. So yeah, don't leave yourself room for disappointment. If you expect to be swayed down even a little bit, keep a bottomed out minimum of about a 3.75 floating in the back of your head, whatever that means, where you initially believe it to be upper echelon, but you can be tipped. Your goal, of course, though, is to sway us up. This might be a more fun format. Number three, listener picks. They're still in place, but there's obviously a conflict with the previous point. This is gonna invite more in active engagement from the listener. First of all, we reserve the right to decline the listener pick respectfully. And if we do an episode at your request, you're the advocate. And we'd like to see you go wild in the comments, star F style. And lastly, number four. Uh, this is something that's technically changing, even though we already broke the rule twice, so it's really status quo. Debut albums are now fair game, but only because of the above reasons. There's now an advocate. I don't care how much of an upstart they are, I want to do for more bands what we did for Snooze, to be a force for good and not for this awfulness. So if I haven't said it enough, we are genuinely sorry to Kyle Bennett and all those who worked on Atlas for being such a discouraging force. Uh, we feared that we were getting to that point without making strides to pull it back as we'd done in the past. In this case, the whole focus of the episode was just in very poor taste. Uh, and also for previous albums, where we similarly panned them without thought for those who might be listening or their personal investment in the project. I believe that by many, by many standards and criteria we neglected over those two hours, you produced a very enjoyable album. And by my own standards, whether it sounded like it or not, and whether you care or not at this point, I haven't by any stretch written you off as a musician. We never do that. It showed vision to create what you created, and I'm more than able to enjoy that album in ways that I didn't bring up. I might well enjoy your future material. Having said all this, I just have one final little epilogue and then we will call it an evening. These experiences invariably make me question the very role of criticism. So here's a quick little story. My piano teacher, my childhood piano's teachers, uh, piano teacher's piano teacher, Isabel Vengerova. Guess that makes her my great-grand teacher? I don't know. Anyway, her teacher was Leszczytewski, whose teacher was Czerny, whose teacher was actually Beethoven. Fun fact. It's a cool little lineage to be a part of. I never even thought of tracing it until very recently. Well, Vengerova herself, um, who's kind of in the middle of that lineup, she was a strict, strict teacher from what I understand. She also taught Leonard Bernstein, who amongst other students felt like they wanted to throw up before lessons with her because of how much they feared her feedback. Back. It doesn't actually help that you can hear the word vengeance in her name, but if there was one group of people that she had colder words for than her own students, it was critics. It's on the record that when she heard that one of her own students was to choose music criticism as a career choice, she said, better he should turn to stone. 
And when I read that, I was like, oh, that, that hurts. And now I'm ready to storm off the website after that. You're not going to see me again on Monday, Matt. I'm off to find out who I truly am. That's some days. And then there's other days where I am actively fearing the preeminence of the lowest common denominator, which is what spawned criticism as a whole. Because there's just far too much low-hanging fruit in the world, and some of it really can be damaging in the long run. But because we select our art like we select our politicians <coughs> democratically, it must be right. And the silence in that point doesn't really look so appealing anymore. So yeah, when I read up on artists who were inspired by works of critical theorists who transformed and revitalized their work, usually for the better, then I tell Matt, yeah. I'll be there on Monday. It's worth a shot. So, Steve, what's our term of the week? Our term of the week is... Uh, maybe I should just be right out of the gate with this, because I like to be coy with you and sometimes uh, give a little background. No, I won't. Etude. Anyone know? Etude? Yes. Spell it. E-T-U-D-E. Uh, and that first E has an accent mark, because it's French. Uh, a drop <laughs> in a song. It's speechless. No. It's the French no. word for bass drop. Not even close. Repeat. No. What? Study. It means study in French. And of course, a etude is the kind of thing you'll find a, a common compositional form from a lot of composers. They do etudes, etude number one, etude number two, blah, 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 blah. Uh, But whenever you see that, unlike when you see like a sonata where it's defined in terms of its sectional divides, that opening theme, seconding theme, second theme, uh, connecting theme, closing theme, uh, instead, an etude is really more defined by a singular motive or idea that may be like a really fast figuration in the left hand or a really unique melodic style with a lot of uh, a lot of fluttering or something like that. Something that will be challenging to the artist. And it, it's obviously supposed to be musical at the end of the day, but it has skill level in mind usually and the promise to provide performers with a new skill set to their wheelhouse. So essentially it's intended to improve the technique or demonstrate the skill of the player. It sounds like it's intended to be extremely frustrating and the sort of thing that makes you pull your hair out by the end of it. Yeah, like I've never done this before, but by the time you're through it, you will be a better musician for it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we call it quits for the night or daytime, depending on when you're listening, uh, John, it's your turn to tell us what we're doing. So what are we doing next week? We're doing a gentleman who has been making music for nearly 45 years. In fact, I think it, this would be his 45th year of making music. I haven't done my research fully, and it's actually someone I don't know very well. But I do. I partially... Don't, don't bite. Don't I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm giving you next I'm week, not. so... I'm not. Um, it's actually an individual that I did not know I knew as much as I knew about because I love Blade Runner, and I did not realize that score was done by Vangelis. Yeah. So we're going to do his 18th studio release. So I think he's in the 30s if you count the soundtracks. Rosetta. Rosetta. Just and and that year, right? is based on what? It's actually based off a conversation between him and an ESA astronaut while he w that astronaut was in the space station. And we'll get into that. And I assume... Named at the Rosetta Pro, probably, Yeah, the right? Rosetta Pro, but yeah. it was inspired by the uh, ESA astronauts and is specifically dedicated to them, and which is not like the first time he's done this or anything Oh, like no, that. His, his connection <laughs> with space-oriented things goes back to that long-referenced album of mine, Albedo 0.39, that I have been listening to since before my memories began. Wow. I know, it feels like my album at the end, but just just remember this, John. Remember how you railed against Nelson Lugo for picking the second Steam Powered Giraffe album, and you were going to pick that. That was yours. 
Remember? Uh, this is a freebie for you. And now you're stealing it. No, it's you're a, it's stealing it from me. This next episode, I'm dedicating to Steve. Now that's true. I'm By finally... you doing it, then I get to do whatever. <laughs> no, mostly I'm choosing this because I finally want to figure out what the heck he keeps going on and on and on about when we do Vangelis. You're going to see the granddaddy of Electronica. All Plus, right. it's if it's my theme of Electronica yeah. throughout the year. Pretty good cap on it. Try yeah. to top it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. On that, that challenge that John is accepting and we are taking on Gauntlet Throne. Remember, music is life. And And life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.